Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here. Two things to note about this episode of the podcast. One, it is recorded in my bedroom, just as this announcement is being recorded, so you're going to hear much of the same background noise, including street noises, because, to be honest, we are too poor to actually afford studio space. Yeah, that motorcycle you just heard go by, that's live. And two... And the most important thing, a week before recording this podcast, we discovered that Victor Pemberton, who wrote the second Doctor story, Fury from the Deep, and also wrote the novelization for that same story, died at the age of 85 on August 13th, 2017. We would like to dedicate this episode to him. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy. time travelers and welcome back to the doctor who target book club the podcast in which we undertake the monstrous task of discussing in story order all the doctor who novelizations because you know there are some monsters in the story yeah yeah (laughs) you don't say yeah that's how i roll my name is tony witt and today we have a monstrously big four-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a who fan since 1979 that would be me There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's none other than the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. He is back indeed. We also have our novice fan who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of these books, since we're making that distinction after uh, Jenny corrected it last time, <laughs> except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Safried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. Good evening. And finally, we have our first celebrity guest panelist, an expert in his own right and webmaster of the late and long lamented website Barbara's Big Buffon. As well as the only fan, to my knowledge, even though he tells me this is not true, who has ever had an actual character in Doctor Who books named after him, the one, the only, Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hello. How are you? I'm excited to be doing this. Good. (laughs) We're excited to have you. Yes. So... I'll have it known I was so excited and nervous about Trey being here that I exploded a soft drink all over the table in a geyser of glory before the episode started because I was so worried about messing up in front of him. You wouldn't be the first person. (laughs) Besides, it wasn't that soft. It was gin, wasn't it? wasn't that soft a drink. Besides, we are today in my bedroom, and it's had far worse things spilled on the floor, I can tell you. Before we get to talking about the book, because we really need to get off the subject of being in my bedroom, let's remind listeners of our new Patreon page, available at https forward slash forward slash patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, 
because we know all of you have those already. <laughs> Every time I try to give one away to one of y'all mofos, you say, oh, I already have that. Give it to the next person. And I say to the next person, do you want this? And they say, no, honey, no. Tony stands by the side of the highway, waving target paperbacks back and forth. Will work if you will take my target paperback and people just stomp the gas and keep going. And then people look at or they stop and they say, oh, is that Brandon Morbius? No. Uh, I, got, I, got, I got two copies already. Because it's always that one. No, I've already got the German one also, thanks. Yes. So you'll get a BBC book as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to stay, help us stay on the virtual air, though I'm not sure we deserve it. Please check out the page when you can. So far, we only have the one patron, and we love him for it, but hopefully others will join Bart very soon. This time... We're continuing that long run of Hartnell stories novelized in the 1980s to discuss John Peel's novelization of Terry Nation's script for the 16th Doctor Who story, The Chase. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Chase, adapted by John Peel from the Terry Nation script that aired from 52265 to 62665, published by Target Books in July 1989. As of this recording in August of 2017, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged BBC audiobook, 144 pages. Trey just um, held up the audio recording of that audiobook, which is actually read by Maureen O'Brien, who played Vicky. Nice. Then the Dalek voices are done by Nick Briggs, so it's got Dalek voices in it. And it's also because of marketing, they call it Daleks the chase <laughs> exactly. because no one's just gonna like want to buy it because it's the chase right. so they yeah. have the word Daleks uh, with a colon after it to make it more exciting. Just to remind us, it's Daleks. Yeah. It's Daleks. We have to be reminded of this. The Chase. Daleks. The Chase. <laughs> Doctor Who. Hyphen. The Chase. Well, actually, it was Doctor Who. The Chase. Was the third Dalek story that Terry Nation contributed to the series right at the height of Dalek mania. Yes, it was actually called this. To the, go along with Beetle. Yeah, because it wasn't... She, it wasn't very long after it. Yeah. It was hard upon, as they say in Hamlet. Uh, the first feature film with Peter Cushing had just gotten released in London in June of that year. Uh, nationwide release was coming in August. So there were basically Daleks everywhere at this point. And it's notable for several reasons. For one, it's the first time that an actor playing a different character was noticed by the producers and asked to play a companion. In this case, Peter Purvis played Morton Dill, that guy at the top of the Empire State Building. Yes. Seriously? <laughs> yes. Wow. And the producer said, you know, we've got this astronaut character named Steven that we're introducing in episode six. We'd like you to play him. And so he got the part. I'm very curious after reading that part to see that part of the episode. Oh, I'll have to play <laughs> that episode. Yeah, because holy shit, it yeah. is... That was my thought reading it. Holy shit. Yes, Even it's worse on person. screen. Yes, and well, we'll, we'll wait, wait till we get there, but it's... Everyone has material prepared for Mr. Dill. <laughs> this is true. Now, this isn't the only time the Doctor Who would ever do this. I mean, Karen Gillan would, of course, be asked back to play Amy after appearing in Fires of Pompeii. Um, Ian Martyr. Ian Martyr was asked to be um, Harry Sullivan after appearing in Carnival Monsters in 1973. And we have... Free Yeah. 
Yep, we have Freema, um, who played Martha, who was uh, a villain, and then yeah. was a companion. And then it was explained it was her cousin or something. Yes. <laughs> it's like, uh, identical <laughs> cousins, and you will find was one. was her mother one of the cat people also? Yes. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes she was. She was in uh, the New Earth episode. Was that the name of it? Yep. It was New Earth. That's right. And also, of course, we have the uh, former... This is Tom Baker and future Mrs. Richard Dawkins Lala Ward. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Who appeared in the last Key to Time story and then was asked to play the second Romana. But this is the first time, one, that it was ever done. And two, the only time that an actor has played a character during the filming of the story and they said, you know, we're doing this in the same story. Come back. In a couple weeks. I, I'm so used to the new series where it's like one hour episodes comprising the story that I got really confused reading that. And I was like, they had the same guy in the same episode? It's like, no, wait. No. Multiple episodes. Yeah, Duh. Been, yeah. yeah. Enough weeks that the audience probably would have forgotten. forgotten. They yeah. didn't have VCRs yeah. yeah. recorded. Yeah. Right. Watch right. it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's totally yeah. the same guy. And Everyone, like, pause, pause. Yeah. No, the static is over his face. <laughs> and, and, I, and they do They do give him a, a beardy stubble, which, yes, yeah. you know, and I think, and then he shaves it in the next story, so then it's, um, I think maybe that was just to make the distinction a little bit less. But also, clear. like, he's on two different planets, so it, yeah. it wouldn't yeah, be too far of a stretch. Like, oh, he looks a little like that country bumpkin that we saw at the top of the Empire Is there some though. fan fiction that would explain, like, is Stephen Taylor a descendant of Morton Dill? God, let's hope not. I, there has to be there. That would explain so many things, though. Yeah. Because, they didn't well. set, set him on a trajectory towards reproduction in this particular story. He somehow one, ascended to a higher plane. So that's one of the notable things about this story, but most notably... It's the first time, though sadly not the last, that the Daleks are played for humor. That's probably going to come as a surprise to you two because you haven't seen the televised story, but you've read the book, and John Peel, well, we'll see, is very good about stripping that humor out for very good reasons. Why do you think it's bad that they're played for humor, though? Oh, you, <laughs> oh, you dear, sweet, innocent boy, you have not seen the televised story. It's, it, well... It is it fun. more like Benny Hill, like almost? Okay, oh. it's it's first of all it's slapstick, and okay. it's, it's they're making a joke of the Daleks. Like you have one Dalek, a Dalek asks a question and it says, "What's the answer?" It's like ah ah hum ah, you know, and okay. like so you have stuttering Daleks and just it doesn't treat them as the menace. Mm. Um, right. Some of the audio only stories have used humor juxtaposed with Daleks very effectively. Very effectively. Yeah. But no, cause I, not, it's, it's slapstick. Of the newer series that I've seen, there are humorous moments with yeah, the Daleks. Yeah. So when I, I'm just like, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. And as I was saying to Trey before we started recording, it seems like the worst stories that use the Daleks and humor also somehow incorporate New York. Right, or the Empire State Building. The Empire State Building, specifically, yeah, because the Daleks take Manhattan. I'm not very fond of that story. Okay. And that's and the actual story name is the Daleks take the Manhattan. The Daleks yes. take Manhattan. Yeah, you know, it's just like the Muppets. Take yes. a drink, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. It's almost worth doing it for. Another reason why, I mean, it's not just the, the Daleks that are written comically, but comedy involves so much timing, and one thing that 60s Doctor Who does is, I don't know if it's the vision mixer or the director, but you know when you're watching an interview via live satellite and there's a delay? Yeah. When the camera switches, you'll see the actors kind of like waiting for a beat before their cue, and mm. then they say the funny line, which right. destroys yeah. the timing. The timing is just so it's, So gotcha. that's one of the reasons why it just doesn't work. So that, that makes it into the episode. It's not Oh, yeah. Out? Wow. Yeah, that's because they, it was 
they had no money, they mm. had no time, they, they had no scissors. And it was only going to be aired once, <laughs> it'll do. That's yeah, good exactly. It's kind of like Dark Shadows all over mm. again, except Dark Shadows left every single mistake in. Mm. <laughs> and it happens yeah. more often with Richard Martin's stories, who also did Wet yes. Planet. And I don't know if he's too ambitious with his camera script for he's at the way time. Too ambitious. And the vision mixer can't keep up with it. That's or, exactly it, you know. because he's trying to make a feature film. Yeah. And he's doing it in, you know, Lime Grove Studio, which is, too, is not a um, film studio. John Peel <laughs> is actually a more diverse writer than even Terence Dix in some ways. Born in England in 1954, he's not only written the Doctor Who book we're reading today, but four other novelizations in addition to writing the definitive Doctor Who and the Daleks book, which is down there on my bookshelf, which I think is in fact the book uh, Trey reminded me that got him the gig. Uh, writing these novelizations because Terry Nation realized he could be trusted to do so, and so he got the rights from Terry Nation's agent. But he also uh, wrote the first original Doctor Who book for Virgin New Adventures, uh, as well as a book for the Missing Adventures line, two Dalek-related books for the BBC line, one of which is, I'll admit, not my favorite for reasons I'd rather not go into. Let's just say I don't that think they're any fan's favorite. Really? Okay, well, so I'm no, safe and no. Okay. No. Mr. Peel, if you're hearing this, please understand. I'm just going with peer pressure. That's exactly <laughs> it. Nobody likes that book. The Daleks themselves are really cool in it. It's really great. Yeah, but he just but it actually kinda of goes back to why he was allowed to do this, because one of the problems with um, Terry Nation was so you can't no one shall write my Dalek stories is he was not happy with the t the 80s Dalek stories. Mm -hmm. So he didn't he didn't write them, you know, they had to write, so he saw what happened in the 80s stories, and the whole book of War of the Daleks was meant to undo one of the plot developments in one of the 80s stories. Yeah. But, but John Peel would work with him on that Dalek book and basically said, reassure him that, I won't mess with your Daleks, I will honor your Daleks, and this is why we have this book and two, you know, several further Dalek John Peel books. Yes, now these, this one, <clears throat> for instance, is a, a situation where I think arguably that worked out well. Yes. Um, was it War of the Daleks? That was the second that was, one. War of the Daleks was the first one. First one. Legacy of the Daleks is the one where the Susan... Susan comes back. Yes. Yeah, he brought Susan back too. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> let's not talk about that either. Um, however, John Peel has also written books based on Are You Afraid of the Dark, Carmen Sandiego, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek DS9, Young, um, James, Bond. young James Bond, um, also did some young Indiana Jones books, I believe. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, he did many, many others. Um, most of his books are held in very high regard, except for that one book <laughs> that I mentioned. And I think it's because it undid the plot development. If it hadn't been for trying to reframe everything, I don't think the book would get that much hate. Right. But it's because it was a sense of, like, I'm going to thumb my nose at a Doctor Who story that's really respected. Yes. As opposed to the writing or any, or the story itself. As opposed to trying to fix one that nobody respected, which is what the chase does. Well, right. A book or a story or an episode that's explicitly designed to get a character or a person from point A to point B is rarely beloved later. Yeah. It's just something that you create to get you to the situation we can tell the story you really want to tell. That's rarely that's rarely the classic, that sort of story. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's exactly the problem there, whereas, um, as we'll see, this book doesn't necessarily do that. 
He also, as you probably noticed, this is the first time we've had an author's note on a book where he yeah. specifically says... I loved that so much, and we'll go you? on and on about it if allowed okay. to later. But, we will. But, we will. In fact, yes. that's the first thing we'll do. He also very subtly introduces elements that will be very important in his two-volume novelization of the Daleks' Master Plan, which will be released only two months after this book, in fact. They dovetail together very nicely. Um, in fact, that's the two-volume uh, book that we're going to be doing in November. Hopefully we're doing it, fingers crossed, at Chicago TARDIS. Trey will hopefully be part of that. Allison, we're still trying to sway With fear and trembling, one. perhaps. Yep, but we'd love to have you there. And Dalton, I know you've got family commitments. And so does Jenny. That's fine. I it, hate it. It'll be like you're missing episodes. Ready and able, yeah. but Emma willing. still read the books. Of course. Of course you will. Of course. So. At this point, there's only one that we've done so far that I haven't read. And that that's right. The podcast that I didn't do. Oh, that's right. And I still have to send you those, don't I? No, I have them. Oh, you do? I just, I haven't read the first Dalek story. Okay. Oh, yeah. The David Whitaker book. Yeah. He's going to love that. <laughs> okay. So, first impressions. Um, Allison, you wanted to talk about that author's notes. So yes. we're going to start with you. Read it with reading Twitter the other day, as I so often am. And someone made uh, the point that, you know, it's so easy to blast young people's involvement in fandoms as a frivolous waste of time. Um, people have been doing so for at least a couple of hundred years now, but the, someone pointed out that being involved in a fandom is a great way to build media literacy, yeah. mm -hmm. where you learn to think not just about stories, about whatever, uh, especially dealing with uh, some kind of serial book series, TV series, comic series, etc., where you have uh, you know, an ongoing story, you learn to think not just in terms of the story itself, but how different writers present different characters, how producers, editors, showrunners, all these other people who are involved at an editorial level, plus people who are involved at a higher level of the publisher or the network or the studio merchandising all influence the story. Right. Is this actor in contract negotiation so that maybe they'll survive the episode? Cliffhanger, maybe not, etc. And I thought that Especially for something that came out in 1989, this would be... I, th I thought about myself reading it when it came out, which I would have been nine years old. I thought about what a great peak it would be into that world mm -hmm. in an era where you did have a lot of fanzines, but you didn't have... You know, which often were quite pricey. You didn't have the internet accessibility that allowed you know, young people to chat about that in the sure. same way. So the, when he talked about different writers being involved and the way this story differed from the, what was originally broadcast, mm -hmm. what was available to American viewers versus British viewers at different yes. times. I thought that was a great peek into how the world of media and serial storytelling in a for-profit situation works. And it's interesting you bring up um, that bit that he says about British, uh, American audiences will have seen this first. Because apart from me getting to see The Five Doctors when I was 13 years old, a couple days before the Brits did, I hadn't really thought about that. Mm. But yeah, by the time I would have would have read this, I would have been 19, and I, I don't think it still would have entered my conscience that as American viewers, if we were watching this in syndication in the late 80s, early 90s, we were seeing lots of things that British viewers were not getting to see because they hadn't been released on video yet, and there wasn't much of a repeat market, weirdly enough. Correct. That's not the case now. These days, you can get it all streaming on BritBox. Who hopefully will sponsor us one day because <laughs> I was going to say good plug there. It would be nice for them to sponsor us, but yeah, 
But um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting window. Into We've that. even speculated before on the podcast. Why is he calling? Why is he called Doctor Who over and over and over again? We are so distracted. Mm-hmm. Who was responsible for this? We want their blood. Was it the editor? <laughs> was it the writer who did right. this? I yes. want answers. Yes. <laughs> exactly. But so even when you're reading this when it first comes out, you have these questions, and I love that he gave a peek into that yeah. in a time and place where it wasn't necessarily customary to do so in an author's mm-hmm. note. And it would have been, um, to those of us familiar intimately with the televised version, we would have looked at that and said, oh, that explains what's coming. And that's good. I mean, I could have done without that explanation, but that's fine. I'm glad to have seen it. Well, I think the irony in some ways is that having, there are, sto- there are novelizations that take far more liberties with the televised version mm-hmm. where you, you have none of this. So it's a, I actually think that the differences are actually relatively minor. Mm-hmm. And so they, they are there, but it's certainly not as extreme as, say, the Romans. No. And, you know, That's there is true. no explanation on that one. Or the Myth Makers, which is coming up. Oh, so, yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Because that one, you look at it and you say, this can't be the same story that was televised. And, and it's for the same reason. It's Donald Cotton again. So we'll be enjoying his special brand of humor. But... I just I, I love what you said I about know. media literacy because <laughs> I, I learned so much just from all the reference books and all the Doctor Who magazine articles just about you know the revision process you know writing for different media it you know it taught me so much that you know it's you know I hadn't really made that connection but that's that's a really true point well and the commercial considerations as well um, I. <laughs> uh, Speaking of reading Twitter recently, someone was commenting harshly about a certain piece was compromised because of interference from the network and commercial considerations should never interfere with art. And someone responded, have I got a story or bad news for you about the entire (laughs) history of sculpture, painting, and writing? There are always commercial considerations of who your patron is, who your sponsor is, etc. Constantly. So Dalton, your first impressions of this one? (laughs) <laughs> First impressions of this one. Yeah. It was an easy read. Um, <laughs> was it a beach book? Oh, it God. was a beach book. All right, I've um, apologized enough for that. No, I'm more amused that you thought we would be um, <laughs> Right. <laughs> call me a spade. I don't care. Um, no, I enjoyed it. You know, I always, like I say, I think of myself as a young teen reading this, and this would have been something, had I read it, as a teenager, I would have loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved stupid stuff like, I mean, not this is comparable to Goosebumps, but like, I would just sit and read books for three hours straight and just like blast through them. So, yeah, I did that. And, uh, you know, knowing a little bit about the Daleks, this is the second story I've read with the Daleks in it. Um, even though the, the humor parts, I don't, I haven't seen the episode, so I don't know, like, what was so egregious about the humor there, but I got a little bit of the humor mm-hmm. in the book, and, um, I liked it. I, you know, there were parts of it, I was like, I feel like I figured out the ending before it happened. I didn't know this was the last story with Barbara and Ian, right. but I was like, there are two time machines. Hmm. <laughs> Theirs seems to work better than the doctors, and they know how to use it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think everything like really fit together really well, and uh, yeah, I just I liked it. It was okay. it was a good read. It was it was a quick read, as I always say. <laughs> but uh, it's supposed to be a quick quick read. It's, yeah, it is. It is. Allison, it is did you see their leaving coming or? 
Yes, but I wasn't trying very hard. Obviously, I was about to 67 New York. And at the time of the episode, was it two? You said it broadcast on 65. Yeah. Did they also go into the slight future in New York? Was it 67 in the episode no. also? Okay. No, they don't even give a date for it, in fact. I just realized I didn't re read the blurb on the there back, is, so it well, doesn't matter. But. Ian looks at a sticker in a car when they arrive, and it says 65. 65. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> but that's but, not how they find out when in the televised version. I don't know if there's some significance to the fact that they were slightly in the future, and it might be about the same amount of time that they had, from their perspective, been on the TARDIS, maybe? Well, it's kind of weird about that, because Peel doesn't seem quite set on that either, because he keeps talking in terms of two years subjective time, three years subjective time, then he says they're in 1967, Barbara claims that's her own time, and it's like, no, it isn't, girl. It's You're close from 63. Enough. It's close enough. Really, though? Know? I mean, I don't that's know like four years off. Yeah, that's like That's like high schoolers saying that there's no difference between a freshman and a senior. But they're adults. <laughs> that's true. That's there, true. It's not like it's you have a five-year-old child turn into a teenager. Sure. No, like, that's true. It's, it's well, close a lot, enough. A lot so can like, happen in four years. No, it, I it know, can. I know, I know. I'm, be, I'm being, I'm being. But I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I thought like the fact that they they talked about how when they were in New York, they were so close to their, they were in the correct time from their perspective, but not the right place. Yeah. So that that seemed that they were going to circle back around to that scenario. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Hmm. I did not feel beaten over the head with prefiguration, though. No, no. certainly not. I wasn't, yeah, I, wasn't, I wasn't too worried about the, the couple of years fudged. I was like, okay, whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I can see that. I mean, it's not like he plopped them into 2001. No, no, that's true. That's true. Um, so where do we go from here? Trey, I have a feeling... Oh, wait, we've Did already... Do you want to read the blurb? Oh, gosh, I probably should, shouldn't I? <laughs> Um, let me go ahead and read the blur because there are <laughs> listeners out there, amazingly, who don't know the story. All right. Through a time... Shit. Through a space-time visualizer, it's easy enough to get confused. Through a time shit. Time That's what I'm Through a time shit. I thought it was like the cave shit. of time and choose your own adventure. <laughs> We can't afford a cave of time. We have a time shed. A time lean-to, if you will. We can't afford a fourth wall. Oh, oh you heard time shed. I thought you were yes. saying time yes. shed. Through. That's what I heard. That's what he heard. Yeah. Through. Final twist. Oh, my God. This is the way it always is. Through a space-time visualizer, the Doctor and his companions are horrified. Horrified, I tell you. To see an execution squad of Daleks about to leave Scarrow on a mission to find the TARDIS and exterminate the time travelers. Eluding the Daleks on the barren planet Iridius, hence the name, <laughs> the Doctor and his friends escape in the TARDIS. What else would they escape in? But that is only the beginning of an epic journey, for epic read simply long. <laughs> As they travel through space and time, they try to shake off their pursuers by making a series of random, truly random landings. But the Daleks don't give up easily. This is a chase to the death. Well, technically, some Daleks die. The Doctor's android double dies. There's a pretty good pileup of bodies on Iridius yeah, as well. There's yeah. oh, to what? Like and and the Marie Celeste. Oh, and the Marie Celeste. Yes. Yes. But I also took that as the Daleks are chasing the Doctor and his companions That's true. to kill to them. To kill them. That's true. What I find interesting about this book is that it's probably one of the best covers, despite yeah. having the shit logo on the front. 
It is very nice. Yeah. Uh, luckily, I mean, it's the same cover as uh, Trey's BBC Audio, except it doesn't have the shit logo. It instead has the uh, modified Pertwee logo that was used for the McCoy, um, it's McCoy. McGann movie, right, McGann movie, and since yeah. has been the main thing for them. And, and you have something for us. Yes. Well, um, one of you know Doctor Who did all these audio things, and there's a spinoff audio called The Adventures of Bernice Summerfield, and she's like a space um, archaeologist, kind of a prototype River Song. Okay. And they did a parody of the story called The Grell Escape, and they even did the cover. That looks just like oh, the cover. Right. Or some of the Empire State Building. They're at the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower. Tower. And, <laughs> and, ah, I love it. So it's it's really and it's very funny because like they have um, a robot Benny and she's like, I am Benny. I like to drink. I have small breasts. You know, or something. <laughs> it's, it's really really. And of course, Bernice is just appalled. And she's like, it's not me. And her friends like, it looks just like you. And she's, so it is played for laughs and it works. Like it's hilarious. Yeah. So yeah. it's it. Uh, Bernice Summerfield and the Grell Escape. Check it out at some point yeah. if you want Unlike to. Unlike the it's... televised version of this story. <laughs> yes, See, that surprises is... me because I thought this sounded like a terrific story to watch. And apparently really? I, I am completely incorrect. Well, it's okay. it's, it's low down it's on the fun. list. Yeah. Because I don't hate is... watching it, but it's kind, of, it's kind of cringy because it's, it's, it, <clears throat> it, it, it reaches more than it achieves. It, yeah. It's... It's clumsy, I guess, would probably be the best yeah. word to describe it. It's clumsy. clumsy. Would be, would you know, you could say it's charming it. in a way. But, but what's charming about having a Dalek pushing itself out of the sand and going, eh, 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 Well, eh. and that's where the, the tone is all over the place, because you get the sense that Terry Nation wrote what he thought was going to be a very exciting adventure with maybe a few humorous elements. Story edited by Dennis Spooner, who loves the humor and oh, ramps it up. Yeah. And... So there's a real... They didn't have a tone meaning. Right? That's, right. And that's what right. I think happened. And even like Dudley Simpson, he does like... The music for it is almost like, you know, um, Rhapsody in Blue-esque. Yes. You know, it's it's so... Dee -dee -dee -dee. There's like piano music, da-da-da-da, like a 60s lounge music. And that's what's... The, that's the music where the dogs are chasing... Ba -dum -bum, ba -dum -bum. Yeah, it's, it's like a very yeah. strange so fit. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a weird... Yeah, nothing matches up. Which well, is why on the page, it's... So yeah, I was just gonna say, have, having seen like all of the the new series since the reboot, basically, if you can call it a reboot, uh, I, I've talked about this before on yeah. here. How basically, since that's all I've seen, that's what I'm picturing in my head. I don't necessarily, I now that I have <laughs> images for Barbara and Ian, and I haven't we haven't watched an episode with Vicky yet, have we? Have we? Let me think. Yes, we have. Did Space we? Museum, I showed you yes, the first we did. episode. But so, now that I have those characters in my head, I see those characters, but it's still, like, stylistically the new series. Yeah. So, in my head, what, reading this and seeing it play out, it plays out more like a new episode would. And or that's, a new story would. And that's kind of what's cool about, like, the audiobooks, because they do a whole different music track, yeah. and they've got sound effects, so it's, it's much more menacing, you know, with the audio enhancements than mm -hmm. it is... Um, when you watch it. And I think that's more than anything down to John Peel's yeah. style mm -hmm. because well, let's talk about the book. Yeah. Right. Because we're we're definitely getting far afield from it. Mainly because this story lends itself to being discussed far afield from just 
the book. Well, well so then I'm going to tell the story about this book. Yes, please. <laughs> um, I remember first reading this in October in 1989, and I remember it so specifically because several days, you know, we found the book at the bookstore, and it was always exciting because there was a new Doctor Who book available. I'd always be begging my mom, oh, can we check the bookstore? And sure enough, it was there. And my, my family was getting ready to move to Ohio. My dad was in Ohio, and my grandparents were going to watch me while my mom went to Ohio to look for a house. Mm -hmm. Couple day, the day she was set to fly out, the 1989 San Francisco World Series earthquake happened. Oh, oh. yes. And so there was all this upset. We didn't have power. Mom was even, my grandparents were stranded midway because they couldn't land in the San Francisco airport. Mm -hmm. They eventually sorted out, but we didn't have power for several days. So my memory is my mom's gone, my grandparents are there, and I'm reading The Chase by Candlelight. Oh, yeah. So you've got these reading. This is earthquake reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so see, I just shook the table because I wanted to be earthquake. Well, it was definitely so, that. Um, <laughs> It's so yeah. That's that's just the memory that I have, and that's one thing that I find interesting with all of these books that I read as a kid. I have a lot of like I remember where I was when I read this particular mm -hmm. novel, and yeah. so that was the chase was the earthquake. I think book. you probably read this more contemporaneously than I did because I would have read this after getting the books later in the late nineties. Yeah. Because I think this is only my second time reading this. Yeah, because like I would be checking those bookstores all the time to see if the new number, and I, I had no idea what it would be, so it was always right. kind of exciting. Number 140's the next one. What is it going to, it's the chase! Yeah. And then, you, you know, do a little happy dance and, <laughs> you know, you get it. Exactly. Well, what stands out to you? What sort of things do you want to talk about with this book? Actually, I do know what we should talk about. How it leads in from the Space Museum because you probably noticed something that time-space visualizer supposedly on screen the, doc the doctor found in the Space Museum. Obviously that wasn't in Glenn Jones' script because it, it's not at the end of that book at all. Uh, it's at the beginning of this one. And I think what happened is, especially since we don't get the Dalek at the very end of the Space Museum, that was probably tacked on by Dennis Spooner, the uh, story mm -hmm. editor. Which is why suddenly we get the time-space visualizer, and we get the lovely sequence of them watching the Beatles. Yeah, the Beatles. The Beatles. Classical music. Yes, classical yes. music. Why don't we start there? <laughs> well, it's of course you can't even watch on the American one because they cut that scene. They did because of rights. It is no longer on the. Uh, it's not in the region one release. I, I think it's a cute gag. I like it. Um, I, I just, I like, I really like the character of Vicky, so, and I like the way that she's, she's young, but she's always kind of treating Ian Barbara as kind of beneath her and stupid, which I think, especially because they're teachers, yes. is like every teenager's fantasy. I know more than you older people do, and, you know, your old music's, and I just, I think it's also very fun at the time because the Beatles were considered so edgy and rebellious yeah. and sinful and now it's like it's classical I, I think it's a I think it's a joke that would have played better in the 60s yeah 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 but absolutely I love a servant Vicky in the last book and she is not allowed to be quite that acidic in this one but when it happens I love it that, that make, it seems very natural that she would try to use this advantage of having greater cultural and historical knowledge <laughs> than they do to uh, to show how what a sophisticated she is. Yes, I can't remember. Is the line about her going to their museum in Liverpool on in the printed page? 
I don't. The deck chairs are from Liverpool. No, it's Blackpool Beach. That's it's right. Different guy. I don't. Sorry. I don't think it's. I don't think, it's I don't think it book. is because she says that they she visited their museum in Liverpool, which probably already exists. Come to think of it, um, but yeah, yeah, Vicky. In fact, Vicky is handled very differently on the page, and she comes off better on the page. Yeah. I, I like John Peel's version of Vicky. I was wondering how you felt about her. Um, she doesn't have nearly as much to do in this book as she did in the previous one. I thought it was a, ta- a, a toned-down version of a similar concept where she's trying to emulate the Doctor and being able to deal all these barbs and sort of passive-aggressive insults to people. She doesn't know how to do it yet. Yeah. She doesn't know how to sort of subtly dominate a conversation, but she's trying... Um, I didn't think she had nearly as much development in her attempts to find her place within the hierarchy of the group in this book compared to the previous one. And I think that will change. You'll see it changing once they're gone and she's having to deal only with Steven. But, yes. I I feel like she kind of held her own, though. You know, whenever she got left behind... She could have just, like, stayed there and cried and be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. Yeah. But she's like, no, I'm going to go infiltrate the Daleks' time machine and travel with mm. them. Like, that that takes balls. Yeah. I mean, like, who could say they would actually then, do that? And right? then even when she's in there, she's, like, fiddling with the radio. And so yeah. she's, I mean, she's in this very dangerous situation yeah. and she's... You know, she's. It's clear that she's frightened and scared, but she's being also yeah. cool and collected at yeah. the same time, yeah. and mm-hmm. is in a nice survival yeah. mode. Which, and I don't like that storyline because it makes the other three look like. How could you leave Vicky behind? <laughs> right. Does. But um, uh, from her end, I think she she comes across very well in that. Yeah, it's like she's like, okay, I'm gonna take this and do what I can with it. I'm not gonna give up. Like this is what I can do. Like MacGyver Vicky. Yeah. 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 She's yeah, not she characterized as generic teen girl at all. No. As, no. And as much as I really enjoyed the Romans, in the Romans, she did spend a lot of time running and screaming in the adaptation. Yeah. Even though part of the gag was that she was perfectly reasonable to do so and the Doctor was underreacting. Yes. In right. the last two books, I really liked the hard-nosed teenager. She had very much her own distinct personality yeah. instead of being yeah. generic teen. And, like, even even the part where she gets left in the forest, and, like, that's the one time that she screams and it's like... That's that's legitimate. Yes, that's a legitimate like, and it's understandable. Yeah, yeah, and that's would, yeah, that's another sequence where the novel does such a better job because it's you can tell Maureen O'Brien's really really good, oh, but yeah. you can tell that she's just been asked to kind of scream and faint, and she's like looking for motivation and <laughs> right. the way it's filmed, and it comes across so natural on on the page yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, and I noticed that that lovely line that they give Ian at the end of is it at, at the end or beginning of episode two or three in which Vicky is well ostensibly screaming but when Maureen O'Brien never screams she's like ah ah because she's you know an actress that doesn't scream and he says don't just stand there screaming you little fool run and, then, and I, don't, I can't really, I don't think it's in the it's book not. either but then she reverses it on him because <laughs> he's like well don't this gaping you big oaf get out of there so like they each get their, di- they get their yeah. digs in so she's she's yeah. funky I like yeah. it so it's a shame that John Peel takes something like that out because that works and there's other moments like that, that yeah there's some strange little lacunae going on here that's for sure he also gets a few other things wrong. He gets the age of the doctor wrong. 
In chapter 2, he says that the doctor is almost 750 by now, but the second doctor will state in Tomb of the Cybermen that he's 450, so that figure is a little high. It's a bit like Eccleston saying, I'm 900, even though the McCoy doctor is 950. It's, I think the doctor's... <laughs> Botox, you know. Botox. Wibbly-wobbly, tiny-wimey Botox. Maybe the bodies. Yeah. Maybe he's talking about the individual bodies or stone age. Maybe. Or maybe there's a different... I, I, don't I know. guess. I don't know. It's just kind of really strange. Is there ever an in-story explanation of why the Hartnell Doctor is several centuries old and then the Doctor starts burning through a body every, you know, two to five years? Huh. Or... Not on screen. Or is it just, or is it assumed that there are actually many other years for each body that are not on screen? Yeah, that's the assumption. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking specifically of the jump from Pertwee's age to Tom Baker's age, which I think is it Craig Hinton that explained that away, or is it Lawrence Miles that explains it away that the Pertwee Doctor, the Third Doctor, travels for centuries dying in the TARDIS before he makes it back home. I thought it was Paul Cornell. I think it's Paul Cornell, in fact. In the Revelation book. That's it. Yes, you're right. That's it. That's why he's along. Because he's more than expert <laughs> than I am. But yeah, that's exactly it. Um, that there are little bits of... You know why I'm thinking about Craig Hinton? I'm thinking about Craig Hinton because he explains why there's an age discrepancy between the Tom Baker Doctor and the Davison Doctor. And did and I think they do some like when like the doctors appear in multi doctor stories, like the Patrick yes. Troughton is aged by the time he's in the that's two it. doctors or something. That's it, because in the, yeah. the Crystal Bucephalus, the fifth doctor is stranded on a planet and he does what any doctor would do, stranded on the planet. He opens a restaurant and makes enough money to create enough time technology to send him where he needs to go, but it takes about hundred and fifty years. Which is why the Tom Baker Doctor is 750 or thereabouts, <laughs> and um, Colin like Baker that. says he's 900. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I so miss Craig Hinton. I really do. You know, bending over the fryer really does age your face. <laughs> <laughs> well, explain, might explain why the Colin Baker Doctor is a little heavy around the middle. Uh, anyway. Um, so, yeah. This, there are so many changes for the better. Speaking of Vicky, she is annoying as fuck on screen in that first episode. Yes. Yeah. And then she says, I'm a useless individual. And you're thinking, yeah, you are kind of. Yeah, <laughs> and, and Bab says, well, here, come sit with me. And she knocks a tray of coffee over on the dress that uh, Babs is making for her, and that doesn't happen here at all. It's more like she's just a typical teenager who's bored. And that's all it is. I did like the meta gag, though. If you can't keep wearing one outfit forever, even if it is dirt repellent and self <laughs> <laughs> so that was, of media literacy, that was nice. Yes, yeah. yes, definitely so. But we uh, at least got spared Ian dancing to Ticket to Ride, which is a song that neither he nor... Yes, exactly <laughs> like that. It is like this. It, which neither he nor Barbara would have recognized because... You know, 1963. Well, it's got a good beat, and you can dance to it. It does, but so. it, unless you're Ian Chesterton. Is this Charlie Brown Christmas dancing? You can attempt oh, yeah. to dance. Oh, yeah. oh, it, it is, is bad. <laughs> it's terrible. What else? Hmm. Uh, I like the part, looking through your notes, you, you don't seem to be a fan, but I enjoyed the, the part in the haunted house and the, <laughs> and the amusement park. It's yeah. cheesy, it's stupid, but like I got there, and having the doctor be like, 
we're in the realm of fantasy. And I'm like, no, you're in a funhouse. You're in. So like, you figured yeah. out it was a funhouse. I figured yeah. out like what it was like <laughs> immediately. You're much more like, clever than I am. Then I was, I was confused really? about what was going on there. Oh. So what were some of your theories that you were thinking it was? Well, I thought it was remarkable that the TARDIS always takes them somewhere in the English-speaking world, even if it's another planet. But, <laughs> oh, they've actually gone to Eastern Europe. Wait a minute, this is very strange here. So, no, they still manage to be somewhere yeah. in the English-speaking world. Yeah. But, no, I was actually curious, though, as once again, as the novice or the amateur here, um, in this era, how they dealt with non-sci-fi elements of the fantastic. If they would have fantasy elements that would prove to be actually paranormal, in this era in the series, it would all be always be sort of a Scooby-Doo situation where it had a scientific or pseudo-scientific Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo. Pseudo and they sort of sidestepped that. Yeah. Well, actually, they didn't, they didn't sidestep it. They gave it a Scooby-Doo yeah. explanation. Yeah, yeah there's a story Martin called House. The Demons that's a third Doctor story where they, that's oh, yeah. basically the whole theme, that all the magic and paranormal is just actually really advanced science, science and all name. that. Yeah. 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 Alien beings that somehow make the Earth. Yeah, and even the new series does that. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Carrionites who basically are tr practicing another form of technology, even though it looks like magic. Sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, <clears throat> that's what it comes down to. I... The, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, the interesting thing about that is that Terra Nation's original plan was in the script for them to have actually landed in the human psyche. Hmm. And Dennis Spooner said, that's stupid. We're making it... <laughs> We're making it a festival. And what's weird is, in the TV series, it's a festival of Ghana. Yeah, from 1996. In, in 1996. Yeah, it's Ghana, not a fun fair. It's, so. and it's not stupid, it's just a different episode, a different yeah, story. It's a very different story. Yeah. And it does set up a later book, yes. though. You're thinking about the same thing. Yes. And I can't remember which book it is. In which Second Doctor story. Yes, yes, in which Bill Gates is having to appear before a congressional committee because obviously the Windows program that was running this fair went haywire and caused several deaths. It's in one of the books. Oh, I don't. I thought you were talking about um, the idea of him going into the human imagination. Oh, no, 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 you're right. Of... Oh, you know what? I, I misled you, Allison. I apologize. Uh, in the second uh, Doctor's era, there is a story called The Mind Robber, and that does take place in something mm. called The Land of Fiction. Mm. However, it's not quite supernatural. It's more another it's plane of really existence. Explained, yeah. yeah, and then the Celestial Toymaker, too. Yeah, and even the Great Intelligence, you know, there's some more magical, yeah. you know, astral plane type stuff going on. So mm -hmm. it I thought, flirts with it. I thought they were yeah. going to turn out to be on a universal film set, only they would have a different generic name for the studio. Oh, I would have loved with that, that, too. With that particular combination <clears throat> of monsters. The next Dalek story. Oh, God. Will be in a, on a universal film set? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. That's in the book, too, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. We're going to yes. have to talk about that. Yes, because there's that whole... Yeah, we're getting out of ourselves. Fuck! Oh, God, we have to talk about the Christmas episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Lovely. No, but yes, I, I enjoyed the funhouse. Uh, Good. <laughs> I, the second that Dracula came out and actually didn't do anything nefarious to them, I was like, mm, yeah, this... Okay. And what's weird to me is, like, apart from, like, one story called Brain of Morbius, like... Doctor Who mines other genres, and it doesn't really mine that universal horror genre yeah, as no. much as it could and almost should, because I think that would be, I think there's a, a joy to be had with sure. the Daleks and a funhouse and 
the campy aspect of the Daleks versus Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, I want to yes. see more of that. Yes, like, I, I, I want to see Daleks versus Wolfman. I want to see Daleks <laughs> versus the Mummy. You know, it's there's yeah. Speaking like, of commercial concerns, you've got the yeah. next, you've got your franchise planned out. For <laughs> for a moment, I was like, oh man, this is gonna get good. This is gonna be like amplify the danger. You're gonna have like something actually happen, and then it's like Dracula disappeared. Vicky went through a trap door. They walked past. <laughs> It clearly, they walk past a trip and Frankenstein is active. It's like, okay, yes, I see this, I get this. This could have been so much better. But you're but you're so the, disappointed. But even the dramatic irony, I think, of that could work very well. Like, where the, the, the viewers know that it's a fun house yeah. and yeah. they don't no. know what they've landed in. I think yeah. there's some, I think that's good humor. Yeah. yeah, and it started off that way. Like, initially, when you're reading about the bats on the ceiling, it's like, oh, crap, where, where are they at? <laughs> because, I mean, there are a lot of creepy episodes. I mean, like, the angels in the yeah. new series. Like, mm -hmm. it's creepy, it's scary, it's like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. But it didn't do that. It went to, like, this campy place. So And even campier on screen. So <laughs> Peel is really doing a disservice here. Yeah. But it doesn't it, quite deserve, to be honest. Yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Oh, yeah. Much, 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 much worse. One of the things that I, it's kind of a change we were talking about, what really struck us, I love how we get so much Dalek point of view. Yes. The do. Dalek point of view works so well for me because for the first time we see how conniving they are. Because in the previous two Dalek books, if we're going in this range, you know, we've never gotten that. It's with, we get Ian's point of view in the first Dalek book and then a standard Terrence Dix one. But just seeing how calculating they are, um, and I think even and even that's played for a good comic effect where the one Dalek is like, it considered exterminating Morton Dill there and then, but figured it'd be a bigger suffering for the human race to let this idiot live. And I think that is genius. Yeah. That's why I was surprised when you said they were played for last in the episode because there's this great moment where they're on um, is it Aridius? Aridius. Where, where the Aridians live. And the, the, they do, one of the dolls does this quick calculation of, all right, I know that the Iridians are going to conform to my demands, they're weak, maybe I should kill them all? No, they wouldn't make very good slaves, but why don't we need to kill them all now? Well, if we need this planet later, we'll just take them, we'll kill them all then. <laughs> but it was half the length of what I just said, but it was actually a nice sort of, it was humorous but chilling at the same yes. time, so I was surprised that... Yeah. You said they were kind of buffoonish on the episode oh, yeah. on TV. Yeah, that sort of calculation doesn't happen on screen. They're not nearly as menacing on screen in that way, even when they're killing people left and right. Um, and in fact, uh, well, we will talk about the Marie Celeste in a minute, but I wanted to go back to Morton Dill for a minute, because mm -hmm. holy cow. Backing up a bit in the book, this was a good week to just read the Gettysburg Address. Yes. Yes. It, yes, it was quite apropos for those listening. Uh, when we're recording this, every time, at least I have checked push notifications on my phone during the workday this week. It's just been Nazis, 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 left and right. Yeah. And actually, it was very interesting that the last book that we read contained at the Space Museum a Robert E. Lee mm, space shuttle. We yeah. were trying to figure out what is he trying to do here? Yeah. Is he glorifying Robert E. Lee or is he? Um, doing a story that's about a slave rebellion. He's got to pick one yeah. and go with it. Of course, he and didn't he actually does. in this book. I did not anticipate that being prophetic at all. <laughs> um, but actually, it was just a very kind of nice oasis 
in time when we read this book to read the Gettysburg yeah. Address. It made it much more powerful than I'm sure it would be if I had read it even a couple of oh, weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and there's no way they could have known at the time that those historical references that they chosen would be so meaningful to us in this moment. But, yeah. 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 I think it's odd that Ian chooses that moment. Yeah, yeah. and it's not Barbara. You know, why would a science teacher pick, you know... From the UK. From the UK, yeah. especially. I mean, we just yeah. had him reading pulp novels before. It was kind of a saucy cover. and Yeah. You know, you'd think he'd, he'd want maybe to see, see a scientific discovery. or exactly. it's, it's a Is it Babs that chooses the Shakespeare moment? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Now that, especially if they'd gone with the original idea, which was Shakespeare talking with his wife and saying, oh, Francis Bacon asked me if he could put uh, my name on some of his plays. I said yes, I couldn't really see a problem with it. <laughs> and it's like, that would have been rather interesting because it would have been Barbara verifying something that would have been... Come to think of it, I'm not even sure that controversy existed in the, the 60s. I know it came later in the 80s. So that's, again... Probably John Peel writing to the moment that he's writing in rather yeah. than the moment that was actually in the scripts. But then why was it in the original script, Henry? Ah, I'm an idiot. Yeah, it was in it was the original idea in the script, so it must have been. But yeah. This was, I think, the most negative characterization of the Doctor that I've read in any of the six or seven that Seriously. I've read. Seriously. In ways that made me wonder if Peel was divorced from the Doctor, or the Doctor was his dad, or you know, he's all No, I'm being silly, but it seemed quite personal at times. Like he was wow. thinking about an actual person that he had known. But before, when the Doctor has been very harsh and dismissive, especially to Ian, mm -hmm. um, it seemed that a person who was very competent has delusions of being omnicompetent. Oh. This is the first time the Doctor has been portrayed is having delusions of omnicompetence, but being almost blindly groping and grasping along. And I thought wow. that was quite interesting. So yeah. the quote I have here, as I struggle to read my own handwriting, is it, in this case the TARDIS, was quite capable of choosing any of the myriad paths through the vortex and passing along them, provided the navigator knew what he was doing. In this case, the navigator was known simply as the doctor. He had very little knowledge of what he was doing. And <laughs> there are two or three or four uh, wow. Little zingers like that in the book that indicate that the doctor is making it up as he goes along, and it's just very lucky. Huh. And that's that's darker than what I've read in the previous adaptations. Now it's interesting that you say that because I thought of Peel's characterization of the doctor as a lot more sympathetic than what we've gotten before. Well, he's, and he's not as harsh, but he's also not as smart. Okay, if that makes sense. But I feel like fun. some of it too, it, it it's the situation. You're being chased by the Daleks through time and space, mm -hmm. and they are on your tail at every turn. Right. So you're not going to make the best decisions. You're not necessarily going to have the forethought to be able to do anything. And also, too, like, the series that I've seen, the Doctor is kind of playful like that. He, yeah. He's very much just like, and I don't know if that's necessarily I'm reading into the Hartnell Doctor that, but it's, it's kind of that, like, eh. Let's just do this and okay that didn't work well let's try this yeah but this later on and this this quotes barbara but it's the author's perspective mm -hmm. this was typical of the doc of the doctor barbara knew blame vicky first for leaving his latest toy then try and flatter her into turning it off it was obvious that the doctor aimed simply to laze about <laughs> 
And like he's supposedly quoting Barbara, but like this was typical of the Dr. Barbara news. That's the author's perspective as well. And I'm joking about him being divorced from the doctor, being his biological son, but there's something darker and more acidic in there that makes me think he's thinking of an actual individual he has known, or huh. um, I, I don't know. I'm wondering about that. It was It'll be a little more is of a that poison just to make than him alien? You know, mm-hmm. is it a push to just make him alien and non-human, or is it darker? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It, Maybe. Well, and also when the Daleks are thinking about how they don't want to enslave the Iridians, they're too stupid, we'll kill them later if we need the planet. Mm-hmm. The Doctor's assessment of the Iridians is not that different. Oh, they're going to let us die. That's right. That's okay. You know, they're probably going to all be dead soon anyway. They'll mm-hmm. dwindle from thousands to hundreds to just a couple of left and they'll be gone. And it's not that different than the Dalek assessment. Except, though, he does have he, that... He doesn't plan to do it himself. Well, he does have that brilliant moment where he realizes that he's seeing the Iridian civilization in decline. Mm-hmm. And he has this moment of sadness about it and yeah. says... There's nothing we can do here, and that's something that is not done on screen at all. And I thought that was a brilliantly done moment. Let me see if I can find it, because I remember looking, reading that portion of it, and thinking, "Wow." Well, it's like you're fine. You know, the Doctor has kind of explained that idea at six points in time, in a couple of the other stories you read, and this is really the first time you're really seeing him like feel it. Yeah. This kind of like, oh man. And and also that um, the passage that you quoted, you know, how we lie, is, is this the doctor or is this Barbara's opinion of the doctor sure. at that point? Sure. You know, it's, it's, because um, she's, she's had her fights with him. It kind of does come across as like this sort of loving family that gets on each other's nerves. Yes. And because like, I yes. do like that, that they are, that Ian and Vicky are exploring and the doctor and Barbara decided to sunbathe. <laughs> yeah, that was very nice. Yes. <laughs> she wonders about the late fees for the rigid deck chairs for millions of years now. <laughs> but in every single book, they have pounded on how the Doctor is constantly launching these zingers at Ian and to a secondary extent at Barb. And I'll kind of they wearily roll their eyes and take it and think he'll, you know, he'll order us around and tell us to do right. this and that. And I guess it'll all work out in the end. He thinks we're stupid, but we're not. But um, he seemed a little bit more hateful in, in, in moments in this book than Ooh. I have seen before portrayed. Okay. And perhaps I'm reading in more than is there. But it was a little deeper. So. Well, I, I don't doubt your reading of it. Um, it it's just it's interesting that I came to a completely different conclusion, thinking that Peel had presented him much more sympathetically than... I finally found that passage. It's at the beginning of Chapter 5. The Doctor realized, sadly, that they were present during the last stages of a dying world. There were parks about, supplying the oxygen that the Iridians needed, but they were empty of people. Iridian confirmed the Doctor's guess that the natives now numbered mere thousands. Soon the Doctor knew, and suspected they did also, There would be hundreds, then a handful, and then cities empty of all but the ravenous mire beasts. In time, they too would perish from a lack of food. It was sad, but the universe sometimes cast down an advanced species like this. Probably most of the Iridians clung to life more from habit than from any real desire. So it's the Doctor having this sympathetic moment, but he is coming to a conclusion that, yeah, they're going to die. I might have read it as more detached. It is more sympathetic than I remember. Yeah, and also his reaction to Barbara reacting to the, uh, to Ian possibly having died, which she, her reaction is much more extreme 
on in the on page than it mm-hmm. is on screen. Um, that he had at first says something along the lines of "You should really eat something," and she thinks that he's being heartless, and he's like, "No," and she can see the pain in his eyes. Yeah, and especially the very ending. I love the ending of this mm. book. Can I just jump to that? Yes. <laughs> the very ending where the doctor's like, "Oh, they're going to be fine." Excuse me, I think I have something in my eye, yes. and he runs out of the TARDIS console room, and he's got a tear running down his cheek, and it's like yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, that yes. matches Vicky's own or yes. something yes. like that. It's yes. a nice final line. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, you get you get a couple of moments like that where it's like the doctor has this kind of exterior that he puts on yeah but really like I, I feel like some of some of what you're reading into that that like maybe anger or frustration with with barbara and ian i feel like he feels responsible yeah for yeah. this he feels like oh man i can't get them back to where they belong if it wasn't for i mean yes they got themselves into this they yeah. followed susan mm-hmm. they, but i'm kind of responsible for them yeah i'm the seasoned time traveler i'm mm-hmm. the time lord uh, what am I going to do to get us out of this? Exactly. And it, and it's again, it's that feeling of like the Daleks are at you, your back, mm-hmm. and every other situation they've been up up to this point, he's been able to kind of figure out before it really got to this point. Yeah, and I think you'll really be surprised by the way he reacts to them on screen because that yeah. audio that I want to play you is from the very last episode. The Doctor's pissed off. He's angry because he thinks they're risking their lives. On the page, he goes so far as to say, yeah, I'm going to help you get home. By the way, you've got your stuff in the TARDIS. You may want to go and get it. No, that's very different from what happens on the page. So maybe that's why I'm reading it as more sympathetic one. Well, and I found all of these characterizations absolutely delightful. Don't get me wrong. Right. I thought that they were funny and, 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 and very nice. But I don't have a conclusion to that sentence. But did you think, as I do, that Morton Dill is the Jar Jar Binks of Doctor Who? Let's, let's, <laughs> let us visit Mr. Dill, shall we? I mean, yes. I love a good clown, so... I don't think Peel does. Peel seems to truly hate Morton Dill because he has not a good thing to say about him at it's all. kind of a minor masterwork, I think, the first page. The description of Morton Dill. Really? Yes. I thought it started off... I'll actually back up. I don't think I ever gave sort of a blanket opinion of the book. This is um, one of my two favorites that I've read of the six or seven. I really enjoy the Romans, even though I know it's much different than the others in form, much different than the episodes. I thought of my preteen and teen self-reading it and loving the humor, and I thought of myself reading this when it came out when I was nine, and how much I would have loved the humor in this one as well. And also a lot about the structure where the... The ship with the, this, with the, the Mary Celeste is a bit shorter, but mostly um, going from a, a longer passage uh, on Aridius, and then the jumps get shorter and shorter and shorter right. in a way that makes sense because he's already established the characterizations he's using for this book and the dynamics in a way that doesn't drag in the way that many of the others have drag yeah. on plot mechanics. True. And I think that he does a good job pulling off that rather challenging trick of communicating the disorientation of a character without just making the reader frustrated that they cannot visualize what's going on. Yes. So when they're, you know, brushing back the sand and finding the glass surface underneath, for example, mm-hmm. you have enough to understand 
what's going on while still understanding that you don't understand what's going on. It was badly said, but no, no, you I understand that they are disoriented, but you're not just tossing up your hands in frustration because you have a paragraph of physical description without a, a true picture of what's going on. That. So overall, I had a really positive opinion of this Great. one. Okay. Uh, but going back to Dill, I thought that the first page was so funny. And it, it, like I said, it was a minor sort of Faulkner-esque masterpiece of describing this, uh, in Southern terms, slow person. Shall I read that? <laughs> yes. Page and then 54. it devolved by the end. So go ahead. Assuming he had a best friend, <laughs> this hypothetical friend would have been hard-pressed to say anything even vaguely complimentary about Morton C. Dill, native of the state of Alabama. For some reason, I'm going into a desperate housewife's voice doing that. With our blessing. At, at school, he had been unaffectionately nicknamed Dill the Pill, a reference to his being rather hard to take. Since his school days, or as some critics call them, school days, Dill had not improved. On the contrary, his tendency to spout whatever came off the top of his mind, there being no deeper level to his thinking, was worse than ever. He rarely worried about having any content in his speech. He constantly intruded on others, generally in loud and obnoxious ways. He's Donald Trump. Yes. <laughs> Very much so, except I like Morton Dill better. Yeah. He'd make a better president. Convinced he was the life and soul of every party, he would make his way into any gathering and try to take over as quickly as possible. Oh my God, it is. It is Donald Trump. <laughs> it or really Trump's is. Lovers. But I see the point. I see well, but that with a good excuse, it says he entered a home for the bewildered. Like, in any case, he, he lives an institutionalized life. That's what I'm getting yes. at. Yes. We don't he has a that. good excuse. I mean, we get the sense that he's going have the paddy wagon call The way they talked about him clearing the elevator in the deck, I thought they were maybe hinting at a flatulence issue as well, perhaps. <laughs> but then it kind of devolves into a Mountain Dew ad campaign. And I don't mean doing it country cool. I mean back when the Mountain Dew ad campaign was toothless oh. hillbillies with shotguns right. and Mountain Dew was supposed to be moonshine. Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. is the joke that he is slow and has a sort of a personality disorder? Or is the joke that he's from Alabama in a way that I, I felt it kind of soured yeah. rather quickly. Um, but his contact with these well-traveled elites did not turn him into a Nazi. So, you know, it doesn't have to work that way. Well, I think I think one of the things that I, I love the sequence as well, and I think, I think it is the one sequence that even Terry Nation meant as the comic release yeah, sequence. And, of course, the thing with comedy is what works... On, in drama on stage or screen in comedy isn't going to be funny to read and vice versa. Slapstick yeah. is not funny to read on page. Mm -hmm. So he, I think what Peel does very well is he takes, okay, this is a comic scene. I'm going to reframe it to make it humor writing. Exactly. And he does use humor writing very well with like, you know, those opening lines. And he maintains it throughout because the, the TV version, there's just all these weird gags like the at one point, they've got this collection of weird tours. A woman has like a big feathered hat, and like her <laughs> her camera strap gets tangled in her feather. And there's another one. She's in a cheetah print, and she's kind of buxom. And the guide is trying to do a double take, like as we look at the vast, wonderful oh, view, and he kind of stares at her breast or something. Yeah. And, and none of that would work on the page, assuming yeah. it's funny to begin with. And they got rid of him and entirely. Yeah. So all that's done, and just you know, keeping this point of view with Morton Dill, I think, is a very wise move on. Um, Peel's part. I could see that. I just get the sense he hates them. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, then most so do most fans for different reasons. But yeah, and yet it got and yet it got Peter Purvis apart, and he got to play Stephen. 
But compare that to his character, to the Peel's characterization of the crew and the family members on. Um, yes, Mary Celeste. Yes, Mary Celeste, which in portraying them as so virtuous and upright, he made them completely flat and uninteresting. You think? In, in comparison, because, wow. presumably because he's dealing with actual historical figures, yeah, he, he can't just, you know, go Robin Williams on them for a while. He has to stick to what is known and think about actual, you know, surviving family members. But I thought it was a tremendous contrast between how he does this. He has this short sort of comedic aria <laughs> with Morton C. Dill and then the the historic episode I thought was flat in comparison. Okay. Um, Dalton, what did you think of the Mary Celeste part? Because we've got things to say about that. I love that there was a citation though in the author's note. Yeah. yeah. So. I, I felt like it was it was quick and at first like I I had to go and read up on it because that's not that was something that I was like, I don't recall this event. And then I read up and I was like, oh, okay, hmm, all right. It was just, it's, it seemed like it could have been any ship. Right. It could have been any, any, any ship they landed on, mm-hmm. the, the Daleks came afterwards and killed everybody, or they all fled. It was just like, oh, okay, whatever. I, could see that. I don't think it really added anything for me. It has more resonance for British readers, I'm thinking, because the Mary Celeste and the legend thereof is a little more... Yeah, it's got more cultural parlance. But was it an American ship, though? It set out of New York. It left from New York, but... Yeah, I don't know. And yet... And yet... Yeah. Or is it just that maritime mysteries aren't as fascinating, you know, as a generational thing that it would have... The 60s audience as American or British would have known more with the Mary Celeste. I yes. believe so. Yeah, and I believe so. Shows my age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it shows mine. No, because, everything uh, I know about Mary Celeste I learned from Dr. Hill. Yeah, me too. So, yeah. And this is, and the reason why I'm surprised, though not surprised, at Allison's characterization of the that being the flattest part. Well, in comparison to what we just read. Is that, as, as you know, in the televised version, we get none of this. Right. That is meant to be one of the most comedic parts of the story, and it falls flat. The Mary Celeste is supposed to be comedic. It's done like a mini directed like that. You know, they're like, whoa, 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 and they kind of jump, you know, when they're jumping overboard. Because they don't see the Daleks, and they're like, ah, there's a Dalek. This whole family will be dead soon. Woohoo! And the Dalek chases one off and then falls into the water and screams, and it's just meant to be this. Extended Benny Hill skit oh. where at that least quite here, where like Vicky accidentally hits Ian on the thing, yes. so yeah, which still happens, right? But it's it's again played for laughs. It's still you know? played for laughs, and yet it's only afterward you think, hey, none of these people, including the baby, were ever found. They all died. They at least Peel says, yeah, they they're gonna drown. Yeah, no, yeah. I got somber ghost story from this yeah. not plastic at all and it was very dark yes it was it really i feel like that that section if anything really showed the severity of and what so, was going on it was like oh yeah. man yeah and so is that a story editor dennis spooner thing is that a richard martin thing is it the i mean well, how did this when script could actually be very serious turn is it because it still happened in episode three, which was anchored with the Empire State Building sequence? So I figured this is a comedy episode. I don't know, but Ooh. it's... Yeah. And I would love to see the production notes and find out for sure, except the way it's translated to the page, John Peel has decided, you know, 
There's nothing comic about this. No, it was very right. serious. Yeah. It's, I mean, it does bring up the whole taste level of, like, I mean, there's there was even, like, a BBC book that came up with some sort of Doctor who science fiction explanation for, like, the Spanish flu that Ooh. wiped out so many people. And, you know, they'll, they'll do things like the Great Fire of London was yeah. explained. And sometimes it's fun, but if you think about it, like, if these are historical tragedies, what is the taste level and coming up with some sort of, like, Doctor who explanation yeah. for it? And I think there will eventually be a, a Doctor Who 9-11 story. I oh. think it'll happen. If it hasn't already, hopefully we'll be gone by then. It'll be, but see, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you could see like if this series is still going on in a hundred years, you know, them doing the Aztecs. Yeah, you can't change history. Nine eleven has to happen. It would be something point. awful. Yeah, yeah, and I could see that being done tastefully, but even then, I'd be kind of like, oh. Well, that's just how. How do you handle history with living well, memory and all that? Right. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, th I think it depends on the event. Yeah. You know, when they go to Pompeii, it's like, well. Right. We don't have anything yeah, to reference for that, but if right. it's something uh, contemporary that you actually have people written histories, videos, people still that lived through it, it's right. like you, well, even then you the, get a little dicey. They'll there. do World War Two, but they won't do the Holocaust. No, you know yeah. that's yeah that gets that gets shoved off to the side. Well, in the World War One episode and the recent series is very serious, and I mean it's yeah, yeah I mean it's, it's definitely seen as. A hallowed topic. It's not at all mm -hmm. played for lessons. Though the Christmas episode may change that. We'll have to see. Since right. it's supposed to be set during World War One. Zany Great War? Or Oh God. Uh, I don't know. Um <laughs> The Robot Doctor. <laughs> Let's talk about the Robot Doctor. Now, you say, the son, I came home, I looked under your bed, I was looking through the broom and dustpan, and what did I find but a robot doctor? Let's talk about your robot doctor. Yes, the three of us are laughing, the four of us are laughing, but for very different reasons, I suspect. So I'm going to start with Dalton, because your, your reaction was laughter. I... <laughs> I got more comment. I mean, he's kind of he's menacing, yes, but I just I I I wanted him to like get reprogrammed or something or have some kind of defect or like <laughs> somehow end up with them, not be destroyed. So I I yeah, I don't know. He he played his part. He was he was creepy. He was scary. Uh, <laughs> it it gets confusing there. It's like, yeah, what do you, what do you do when the person you think that you're with is not the person you think you're with? And mm -hmm. yeah, where, where does that take you? Okay, Allison? I think a lot of the humor and poignancy of a double story has to be visual. It's really hard to translate that. I think it's a boring trope when it's on the page. I was instantly uninterested, but I think that I lost a lot of, a lot with not having the visuals. Yeah, I and agree. Seeing Hartnell's, yeah, non-double double. Oh God, yeah. Well, I was thinking more about when he actually does play the robot, which is in only two scenes, but he does it so chillingly. Yes, yes especially he's very good there. when he touches Jackie Hill's face, you worry for her safety because my dear, and you're like, no, don't touch her. Oh my God, Hartnell is very good there. Unfortunately, what happens is like they had because of the limitations of having cameras. Sometimes the Double is actually close up and saying the lines, even in scenes when Hartnell's not in there. 
And so mm. it'll say, he looks exactly like him. And then it's just completely not like him. No, doesn't look like him but in I, the least. I think there was a missed opportunity with that. Because, like, something Dalton said about, like, reprogramming it. like, And it does kind of, I like the, the, the Daleks reprogram it with the memories they had. So the giveaways, he mentioned Susan, which Peel wisely mentioned Susan in the end, the opening chapters. Yes. So the reader's like, oh yeah, there oh, was yeah, this yeah. Susan yeah. person yeah. who was right. with them. So then that becomes a key thing. Right. But you, there could be some humor of like, the Daleks have just gotten to programming a little bit even more off kilter. And they're like, <laughs> why are you doing this? You know, it's... Yeah, it works, it works much better on the page. But I, I disagree. I, well, I don't know because I, I'm with you. It's like a, a double needs the visual. That's well, the whole it point of it. A great actor showcase, and I don't know if yeah. we have that here or not. I just have page. an overactive imagination, so I'm like picturing all of that. Like, oh man, yeah. I also instantly mentally reject any story about a robot or a horse. Really? What, what can you do? I'm not, not interested in the story about a robot, not interested in the story about a horse. I was no, going to say. No. What about no. a robot horse? Absolutely not interested. What about horse robots? Shaking my head. So you don't not like even wasting my brain. No. No. I'm actually interested in seeing Westworld. You cold woman, you. I ha I love it though. No sea biscuit. The, the the doctor is actually it's it's kind of amusing when they take him for the robot doctor and he's like, oh relax. <laughs> it's like oh relax, come on already. But we lose that line that when he kills the robot doctor and he says someone needs to call a doctor. <laughs> yeah, we don't get that. It's a very James Bond esque kind of thing. And then we get the mechanoids. We have to talk about the mechanoids because I do still want to play you the audio that was released, the uh, record album, the mini record album that was released that same year, and it featured the mechanoids. And the mechanoids were kind of like going to be like the Zarbi. You know how like they wanted to make Zarbi yeah. happen and it just didn't quite happen. Yeah. And like, you know, they, they tried to make the mechanoids happen, and they again they appeared in comics and stuff. Yeah. But like this is their only TV appearance. Yeah, and because the operators could not get them to shift and could not get them through the doors because they were so huge. I saw a, but they had the blow torches, and I saw a fabulous picture on the internet on like the Doctor Who '60s photo research thing of the producer, Verity Lambert, and she's there lighting her cigarette off of one mechanoid That's brilliant. Now, are there, are there any other, I guess, entities in the Doctor Who universe that become kind of, like, ubiquitous? You know, I, the thing I'm thinking of is, like, the angels have become kind of, like, that. Like, Cybermen. Cybermen, of course. Um, are there any others? Suntarans, to some degree, but not nearly not that level of, no. Certainly not. In fact, the first time they brought in the Jadun, I was like, oh, they ripped off the Santarans right. to do this. So that they had to change the designs of the Santarans when they did bring them back. But no, you're right. No. There, there are no other races that really have. The new series, I have to say, is interesting in that it made the Weeping Angel stick. Yeah. Yeah, because they are an iconic villain and they haven't been around for that long. No, but they. I feel like what they do similar to the Daleks is you get that menace you get that oh man well, they're yeah. screwed and they also have that very they have a very strong visual component like yeah. the Dalek nothing looks like a Dalek yeah, yeah. you know and right. the angels the way they you know change faces and there's just a real strong visual component there whereas the mechanoids 
are essentially just what do you call those? geodesic domes? Yeah, yeah that's all yeah. they are. They're like geodesic Epcot. domes yeah. on. Yeah, in fact, that's what we're seeing in the very middle there. That's what a mechanoid looks like. Uh, yeah, I that's, remember looking at the cover and I was like, "Ooh, cool!" And then yep. that ended up being the mechanoids, and I was like, "Really?" You know, <laughs> and they actually are much more verbal on the page than they are on screen because on they screen speak in a computer code, so they're like oh. zero, one, two, enter, stop. Enter, and that's the, and so you can't even understand what they're trying to yeah. say half the yeah. time. Which could be menacing with the right delivery. The right. idea that you can't really interact or interface with them, you can't influence them. Yeah. They're just speaking yeah. in code, or it can sound really lame. Yeah, which is weird because sometimes Doctor Who has managed to rehabilitate that. I'm thinking about the uh, recent appearance of the Mondasian Cybermen, the originals, yes. and. The um, big audio, object finish audio um, spare parts. Spare parts. The so fact the that they managed to make that original Cyberman voice, which is awful on screen, far more menacing. And they, they do, there was a big finish audio with Mechanoids. Yes. Um, the Juggernauts. And they managed to And they did do a, they, they, they rehabilitated the Mechanoids that made yeah. it very sinister. So it yeah. is possible for it to happen, but no, the Mechanoids are never a thing. I think there there was a Mechanoids toy. Maybe I'm misremembering that. In the well, 60s, I'm not sure. I don't sure. know if they, they have one now. They have one now, but of course they have a toy for everything now. Yeah. They have the Mox of Balloon. <laughs> What's the name of the The Mox of Balloon. The Mox of Balloon, yeah. They have a fucking... Cassandra figure and she's they have just... two like, Cassandra figures. There's one of the empty. Does she come with her little spurt bottle? No, yeah. they should. <laughs> they do have oh. a little spray I bottle. I just assume you're talking about the Iliad action figure set, which I would definitely buy in several different versions. <laughs> <laughs> so, we lose Babs and Ian and we gain Steven. How do we feel about that? And how Peel does it? I was glad he didn't die. I, I was like, there's so much death. Like, really, you, you throw him away that easily? Yeah. Come on. Like, yeah. after everything he did for them. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was glad that he were you, were, Did you pick up that he was being set up to be the new companion as you were reading it? or? Um, not really. Okay. I, I felt like it could have went that way, but I also felt like maybe, I don't know, they would... Once I realized, like... They're the two time machines, ideally Ian and Barbara would go back to their time. I felt maybe he would go with them, go back to Earth, and there he's at least in civilization, he's at least not stranded on this planet uh, with the mechanoids, or maybe they would drop him off somewhere. Right. You know, mm -hmm. I, I felt like that would happen, but once I realized he's not dead, and now he's like at the TARDIS, I was like, oh, okay. Uh -huh. I got it. Picked up on it. So. Okay. Allison? I did not anticipate that they were actually going to bring in a new character. So I did not see it coming. Okay. And I do not have strong feelings one way or the other at this juncture. And there's really <laughs> no reason to because Stephen is very kind of written on the back of the postage stamp well, and will continue to be. Well, and that's the thing. One of the uh, things, and I feel bad because like we are talking about the TV version, we're talking about the book version, but yeah, you know, that's one of the bits that is lost is Steven has a toy panda. He has a stuffed panda yeah, he does. called Hi-Fi, and that's his little mascot. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why he's in such danger is they're on the roof and all the fires, and he's like, I've left the mascot! And he actually goes uh, back, like a child in a really bad action film, yeah. to go get his toy. And, you know, and that's why he's 
it's kind of separated from them. Yes, which Peel gets rid of. That would annoy me. Yeah. That would really annoy me. We will meet Hi-Fi in the next book, briefly. Very briefly, because <laughs> Nigel Robinson quite wisely realizes there's a brilliant line that the Doctor gets that relates to the stuffed panda, and he's got to put it in that script. And it's like, yeah, I'm glad you left it in there. And then but he then, euthanizes Hi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't put it past the first Doctor to euthanize anything if he thought it was something to, uh, Humanely, to keep him safe. Yeah. But yeah, um, and Peel does a really good job of allowing that narrative pause for Stephen to get there to the TARDIS, because it's not on screen, really. Right. Yeah. Because that's the whole surprise in the next episode, the Doctor and Vicky aren't even, well, yeah. Yeah, and when we talk about the time meddler in a couple of weeks, we'll have to talk about how Nigel Robinson handles that, because, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Any other points in this book specifically? Because we, we kind of gave the Iridians short shrift, and well, they kind of deserve it. I want to know too. how to pronounce their names. The Iridians? Yeah, because it's, I mean, this is something that always interests me about science fiction and fantasy because you have these names that obviously, if they had been used on screen, we would say, okay, that's official pronunciation. But, it, you know, you see these names that have apostrophes or constructions that most of us wouldn't use. and. I'm sure that so many readers are pronouncing these names differently in oh, their yeah. heads, and that's something that I've always found interesting. So about. are they not named on air? No, there's like Mousan and... I mean, they're not the named as, as a species of... And the species, it, well, the species isn't called Iridians. Well, actually they are. Yeah, the Daleks call them Iridians, yeah. and they refer to the planet as Iridius. But this is what drives me crazy about Terry Nation scripts. You remember this from Keys of Marinus. Let the record show that a clenched fist was shaken in Dalton's direction. Yes, you remember this, because we talked about the fact that Terry Nation loves naming planets after the key characteristic. So we've got this planet, and we land there, and there's right. a sea of acid, and it's called Marinus. And there's the dream city called Morphaton. Morphaton, yes. Yeah. Desperus is coming up in this. Desperus is coming up very soon where they meet a desperate criminal. <laughs> and we've got Iridius, which was a water planet until it had its moisture stripped away by the sun, and now it's arid, hence Iridius. Yeah. I just think, going with that, how fortunate it is that the Mechanoids landed on a planet called Mechanus. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's also, it's like, why, why are the things that we are referring to as Iridians called Iridians. There are clearly other species right. on the planet, so yeah. it's like... I mean, by, by, by that you know, explanation, like everything that exists on planet Earth could be called an Earthling. Yeah. As opposed right. to a human. Oh, yeah. that's a point. That's, that's true. So that's it's a like, very good point. why are they considered Iridians? Yeah, it's... And the Marinians are... Right. Oh, did you hear that, 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 um, um, oh shoot, sorry, that shout out? Because I know you watched the new series, Allison, I know you haven't seen the new not cut episodes. And, and I know you have. Um, in which the Mondasian Cybermen came back and the Doctor gets a throwaway line in which he says, Cybermen happen everywhere. Earth, Mondas, Telos, Marinus, and it's like, Holy fucking shit, they have just made canonical uh, the comic strip yes, from Doctor Shapers. Who magazine, which was written by, and Allison will know who we're talking about, and I'm blanking out on his name, so help me, who wrote that script. Oh my god, I it's a... Suspense is killing me. Who yeah, it's a, it's a well-known comic book writer. Paul Cornell? No. 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 Dave Gibbons? 
No. Okay. No, that's the uh, uh, artist. Um, Park House? No. It is, oh my god, I can't believe I'm blanking out of this. That gin's strong. Um, let's see. <laughs> who is the... Oh my god, it's a British author who later became really I'm looking it up right now. I'm looking it up right now. Crazy scripts. That doesn't narrow it down at all. It's not Alan Moore. Okay. Though Alan Moore did write some Doctor Who comic strips. Okay. Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison. Oh, okay. Let's Grant back up. Grant Morrison. All right, so. All right. Grant Morrison, I know what he wrote what? This is what he did. He wrote a comic strip in which the sixth Doctor goes back and picks up a companion of the second Doctor. Okay. And he's doing this because the Cybermen have made reference to the two of them and has have talked about Planet 14. And Which I is a line from the invasion. That's also name-checked. And it seems to be a continuity reference error on Morrison's part. To some degree it is. In this comic strip you find out that the Vord mm-hmm. from Keys of Baroness went on to become the Cybermen. Or a brand version of Cybermen. And that's how the new series is taking it. That if you've got a humanoid species that has any sort of technological advancement, so if they get to the point where they can do bionics... You want Cybermen? Because this is how you get get Cybermen. Yes. They eventually become Cybermen. If they fall into an area where their species is in trouble. Hmm. So the new series like has the Cybermen com- will come and offer to set up a no. franchise to save them. Or? No, the the the, the or they, they will naturally will evolve the into the cybernetics cyber- will end up replacing oh. whatever the dominant life form is. Yes, yes, <clears throat> and it's brilliant because it's like yeah, it also says something about our kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for how fascinated we are with technology and how eventually we will come to replace parts of our bodies with cybernetic parts, which is what the creators of the Cybermen were worried about way back then. How did we get on this? How did we get on to Oh, Marinus and the names. Marinus and Terry Nation. Yeah. Yeah, so Terry Nation indirectly is responsible for the Cybermen. Thanks, Terry. Yeah. But he also gave us the Daleks, so that's not such a bad thing. Also, it was kind of a lazy shorthand of, oh, I took baby Latin and baby Greek when I went to a very fancy high school. <laughs> so I can throw out these names. Yeah, um, it's kind of that. <laughs> and it, it just gets worse as time goes on. But Or that it's sort of a colonial naming convention where this is what the doctor calls these planets, but it's not necessarily what they call themselves, maybe. Exactly. Sort yeah. of a taxonomy that he and other time and space travelers use, but not necessarily their self-labels. Possibly, and the TARDIS may be translating for us. It could be any number of things. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the book? Don't let's start with you. Nothing that I can think of. I think I've covered the things that... Covered all the things? Covered all the things. Okay, Allison? I think I've also covered all the things I am ashamed to say that I read through the final third extremely quickly in my effort to complete it before this evening, but I thought that it balanced many disparate elements of the Doctor Who novelizations better than any of the others that I've read. And like I said, it's a limited pool of six or seven, but Mm -hmm. the pacing and structure and the characterization uh, I thought were more judiciously handled in a fun way that communicated love than any of the others. I think the the last one I, I complained that parts of it were done competently, but it was 
clearly a mercenary job. Someone needed a gig. It was not done with loving care that yeah. I thought this yeah. one had. Mm -hmm. And it had a great combination, I thought, of humor and workmanship and that love for the characters. Okay. So it, I, I struggled with how I was going to explain why this was one of my two favorites that I've read so far. And mm -hmm. the Romans was an oddball yeah. uh, compared to the other characterizations. And it isn't any one single element. It was just such a nice harmonious uh, presentation of a story that I now know I should hate and is terrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in the novel, I actually quite enjoyed. Okay, all right. I, I, I agree, and I think I like that you sensed um, that this was kind of a labor of love and that did stem from that friendship that he developed with Terry Nation. And you can get, you really definitely get that sense. Um, to me, I enjoy the novel. I don't really have anything else to say except that I think this is a novel that really, or a novelization that throws up the difficulty I have in rating and evaluating a novelization. What criteria do we use? I know mm -hmm. in previous um, mm -hmm. podcasts when you talk about your rating, you compare it to all of literature. Yeah. And, you know, I've sometimes questioned, you know, is that how I rate it? Or does a novelization as opposed to a novel? Mm -hmm. Because this is what I think is an excellent novelization of a disappointing story. Yes. And we have the reverse happening. Fantastic stories are on screen and then you get the novelization and it's disappointing. Oh, yeah. And then everything in between. And what is the purpose? Should should a novelization ought to adhere to what's broadcast, but then what do you do with a the Romans or yeah. something? So I think, you know, I don't know if there is there is no science how to evaluate a novelization, but I think this is a good exhibit of mm -hmm. a, so the sort of one that would, you know, generate Exhibit A, how, is this a good novelization of a bad story? You know, is a story yes. versus the adaptation? You know, mm -hmm. those, I think there's a dichotomy happening there that is very interesting. I think so too. And I think John Peel is definitely an example of somebody who puts heart and soul into something that didn't have a lot of heart and soul to begin with, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we're going to get, we're going to get really good books along the way like this. We're going to get Malcolm Hulkey coming up who not only writes really good televised versions but writes excellent novelizations mm -hmm. of not only his own scripts but also the scripts of others. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get people like, you know, we've already had Ian Martyr who did just that marvelous job with Reign mm -hmm. of Terror. Mm -hmm. Yeah, was a, a, the run of Hartnell's where the original screenwriter started Getting, you know, they were actually giving yes. the first offering. So you have William Mims and Paul Erickson. For better or for worse. Who, but it's their vision. Donald Cotton's actual two stories that he wrote. That's you know, true. Those, um, there's, there's some goodies coming up in the, that's true. In the and, future. And that's right, because he didn't write the Romans, did he? No. No. And Spooner. Yeah, so we've got something there where we've got Cotton saying, you know, this isn't my story. I'm going to make it better. And he does make it better. Here, it's almost, I always thought of it as kind of John Peel's promise to a dying Terry Nation, I will, I will see your vision of the dogs fulfilled! Yes, yes and he kind of does it, and when we get to Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks, oh my fucking god. Oh yeah. Before we go on to our Goodreads reviews, as we always do, we have a special added bonus, he said ironically. If you can call it that. A, a mini record album was released in 1966 of most of the audio of episode 6. In fact, Allison, um, that second shelf where you see the Pirate Planet and City of Death 
if you look in the middle, on the top, there should be a record album on the very top. Yeah, if you'll, there it is. That is the record album. That is the original pressing of it. 21 minutes of adventure. Yes, 21 minutes <laughs> 21 of adventure. just enough. <laughs> because it was released by Century 21. Now, Century 21 were the producers behind Thunderbirds. And in fact, everything that was the, um, the rivals of Doctor Who. So for them to be producing a record album with the Daleks is just kind of bizarre. It's just strange. It's like having, say, CBS do a compilation of the best moments from Friends. Mm. Yeah, it's got that kind of weirdness to it. Also, not to be confused by the real So Yes, exactly. So this is at the height of Dalek Mania. Now, obviously, I do have a turntable, but I'm not going to play it from the turntable. I'm instead going to play it from the computer, which we may get a little bit of feedback from, but... This audio exists on YouTube. No, that's not the. So I'm going to play the YouTube version of it. Unfortunately, you get that squeal, but there's nothing to be helped there, I'm afraid. Um, the visuals we're going to see on YouTube are just because the original poster decided to put them there. I don't think we're going to have any problems with copyright with this. But this is the audio of the uh, mini-album. The voice you're going to be hearing is David Graham, who voiced the Daleks. So he's doing the novel, uh, he's doing the narration. Feel free to chime in with your reactions as we listen to 21 Minutes of Adventure, The Daleks. That's not the Doctor Who theme, by the way. Is it like some of the sound effects from... The tale I have to unfold is like a dream. A fantastic nightmare. As you sit in your comfortable, familiar surroundings listening to my story, you may feel it could never have happened. But to Doctor Who and his friends, it was very real. For two years, they had been ranging through time and space in their craft, the TARDIS. Relentlessly, they were being chased by the Daleks, a humanoid race from the planet Skaro, evil creatures intent on pursuit and destruction. In their own spacecraft, they had chased Doctor Who, Ian Chesterton, and the girls Vicky and Barbara, the girls. They they the the last names. <laughs> All around them was a seemingly endless jungle, where strange carnivorous plants reached out greedily at them. In desperation, they fled into a cave, hoping to find some kind of refuge. But the dark interior soon crushed their optimism. Solid black rock faced them in every direction. In their panic, they had rushed into a trap. Then, to their astonishment, the far wall of the cave slid open, revealing a room where a robot stood and addressed them. The robot has emphysema. Although the robot would say no more, it was enough that they had been saved for the moment. We're going up. Yeah, it's a lift. It's a crowded elevator. <laughs> 21 minutes of bounty and adventure. Fifth floor, please. I suppose you'd like to know who we are and why we are here, hmm? Not really. 
You're not getting through to him, Doctor. You're not getting through. Doctor, ask him where he's taking us. Hmm. He's taking us up to the city, obviously. Whilst they continued their journey in the lift, the Daleks reached the cave and were thronging round it in anger and frustration. Playing their seismic detectors round the cave walls, they found traces of the Earth people who had eluded them. It has that sort of, of, like, the 60s, that sort of 1930s newscaster vibe. It does. Possible perceptor readings indicated they were here. Or a bit like one of those educational videos of like, if you need dollars, <laughs> you know, something. Penetrate this wall. Meanwhile, the strange Bless. robot was conducting Doctor Who and his party higher yeah, and higher. Yes. The elevator seemed to climb for an eternity. Finally, it slowed to a halt. It was only half the an eternity. The people wondered what someone would meet their eyes when the elevator doors were open. <laughs> These are the mechanoid noises. Yeah. Interesting sense of proportion here. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no. Look at it. It is fantastic. The elevator had taken them to a vast city that towered on massive stilts above the jungle. From the elevator, Doctor Who and the others were transported by conveyor belt through this strange, unearthly place. <laughs> transported. Although their eyes searched high and low, they yes. could not see a trace of human existence. Instead, they saw a completely mechanized civilization, controlled only by robots, like the one escorting them. At last, they came to a halt at the door of a huge building in the center of the city. As the door slid open, the robot again addressed them and indicated the room beyond. Also sounds like the voice thing that... Uh, Wrote cancer patients out? No, <laughs> that Leia has in uh, Return of the Jedi. Oh, yeah. Enter, enter, zero, stop. Whenever they're in Jabba's palace and she's. Oh, in yes, the it does. Yes. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. 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 Not bad, eh? Yes, but I don't like it. Why not? It's clean, it's comfortable, the robots seem quite friendly. Yes, yes, robots. But haven't you noticed something very singular about this place? Like what? We've only seen robots. No animal life, human or otherwise. That's very true, Doctor. Which is kind of a throwback to the Masters of Luxor, which is that... The first human being they had seen for ages. A well-built young man wearing a spacesuit. He paused, regarding them in equal amazement. It was a moment or two That's before any of them amazing. could find their That's tongue. Really? <laughs> yeah. Who Okay, I love me some Steven Taylor. I what? think he's maybe yes. one of the most, if not the most attractive companion. He's pretty nice. He's, 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 he's got amazing hair. I'm Steven Taylor, flight red I'm sorry, I'd still do math in Waterhouse. I'm Mickey. Ian Chesterton. This is the doctor. Well, I'm glad to know you, Stephen Taylor. This is great, huh? I mean, it, it's ridiculous. I've lost my words. How long have you been here? Hmm? As far as I can make out, about two years. Two years? Alone? Apart from those fungus, eh? You mean there's no <laughs> other human beings here on this planet? 
nothing except the mechanoids. Where do they come from? You know. You don't know? But this is mechanus. A dirt. About 50 years ago, Earth decided to colonize this planet. Well, it landed a rocket Which he changes in the book as well. It's yeah, more than 50 years. Immigrants. And they didn't arrive? No. The Earth got involved in interplanetary wars. I suppose this place was forgotten. 50 years ago? But surely these robots have been worn out by now. They'd have run down. No, 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 no. They're programmed to do... I love how it looks in that photo that like he's about ready to burst into song. Why not us? Who could be the immigrants? The doctor's got saying to know they're up. cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's been two years trying to break it. Me and Barbara like our contracts are crashed out now. Out there in the jungle, I wandered around for days trying to avoid those fungus things. Of course, then the mechanoids captured me. Captured? You mean you're a prisoner? <laughs> Would you think I'd stay here otherwise? I'm just like you. We're all prisoners. So now he has all day to work on his hair. He's, he's put his time to good use. Yeah, that's it. on ice. Steven Taylor was right. They were indeed in the power of the Mechons. Mechons? The Mechons, because they summoned the Mechons. Oh, that's right. To reveal their captors staring in at them as if they were some kind of specimens in a zoo. Well, <clears throat> Meanwhile, the Daleks were working frantically to break through the rock wall which had closed between them and the elevator. Oh boy, here it comes. Into the cave, they brought their powerful electrode unit that was to activate the elevator machinery and bring the conveyor down again to their own level. Electrode unit ready. Operate. Demonstration by a Hoover door-to-door salesman. <laughs> Which is funny because in that um, audio with the mechanoids, that's how they're marketed as like cleaning robots to help out with things. And there they do do the Hoover and so forth. I love this mix better. With the dollar studio. The humans will be destroyed. The mechons will not be permitted to stand in our way. We attack! We attack! 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 This also the first story that use exterminate as their battle cry. Yeah. And it's the first one where they have the little solar panels. Oh, that's right. Up to the roof. Oh, great. Up to the roof. The roof! Oh, why don't we get out that way? Don't think I haven't thought about it myself, but that roof's 1500 feet above ground level. Bring out the beach chairs. Yeah. to get out. Vicky has the most amazing striped shoes in this, because like, we get some close-ups of her shoes, oh, and right. then, get out of here. she's got these stripey pumps. Gonna do it. I'm gonna have a look up here. What's the deal with the one outfit? Like, didn't in the last story we talk about all the clothes that they have on the TARDIS? But those are their crusading clothes, like, where they go and things. She has a proper dress in the Space Museum, but... And I think they even talk about that in the book. And then we know that Barbara's lost all her sweaters to Ian's escape. Oh, that's a great Oh, no, not again. Oh, no, 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 no,
It's interesting, like as an aside, that you've heard about the Dalek movies with Peter Cushing. Yes, I they, actually, yes. Yeah, they wanted to do a third one based on the chase, uh, and they I never did. I could see that going very well, but yeah, because that second one that I showed you bombed the box office because by then Dalek Mania was pretty much petering out. Come on, let's get it. Hear what you did there. <laughs> I try. Twenty-one minutes of excitement. I think that's the end of the first side, in fact. Maybe. So they're going to flip, flip it. it. Ian's idea was to use the enormous length of cable on the roof of the building as a means of luring themselves to safety. It would be a perilous operation. I wish you mean a cable knit sweater that unraveled for this purpose. But it was too good a chance to miss. MacGyver of wool goods. Well, any chance? Yes, but it's going to be dangerous. What, you mean the cable? Yeah, do you think there's enough? Maybe. I thought of trying it myself once. I couldn't have managed it on my own. Hey, wait a minute. Where's this leading us? Down to the ground. We climbed down. 1,500 feet of cable? I'm not very good on heights. Yes, it sounds <laughs> out of the ship. I agree. Oh, the cable's strong. That's not break. in the book either, is it? Which is fear of height. I don't yeah. like it. Yeah, it's gone. There was now no time to argue. From the window of the prison, they looked across the top of the elevator shaft and saw the Daleks. They had reached the level of the city and were attacking the Mechons who stood in their path. You will be annihilated! <laughs> Dispatch a section to the roof area. I obey. Daleks. Well, let's settle. Go on, go on. On the roof, quick, go on. Now, I think you're leaving something to remember us by. Hmm? That's that publicity <laughs> shot from the Space Museum. Yes. And the ball is not in the book either. Doctor Who left by the door right, because the they do that self destruct. Because what city has a self destruct? This was a machine well, programmed to explode whenever any <laughs> of the creatures came in. In fact, the Earth people had escaped just in time, for a moment later, one of the Daleks broke in and set off the Doctor's device. I also enjoy them calling the the threat of destruction by the Daleks was only delayed. One or two of them had been exterminated, but the party knew that others would soon follow. Quickly they unwound the cable on the roof. When Ian wrenched the end of the cable from the junction box, there was a flash and an explosion. Exciting. I think we've used it. Come on, about that. Let's go on this. Come on. Quickly. Get down. Come on. We're going to have to lower. Vicky. Vicky, listen to me. Listen. We'll tie the cable around you and lower you to the ground. No. You'll be quite safe. No. I can't. Vicky, my dear. I've got a blindfold, you, and you won't be able to see a thing. You'll be quite safe. She passes out. I can't. Oh, right. I love that. I'm going to blindfold you. Oh, yeah, that's going to make me feel much better. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hold on to this. For Maureen O'Brien acting the heart out there. Please, I can't. Oh, gracious. Oh, gracious. Oh, 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 that, no, that's some quality nightmare fuel there. Yeah. So as the doctor and his friends made their descent to the jungle below, 
the fire in the city gained in strength. Started by the explosion from the doctor's anti-Dalek device, it had been fed by the flames from the live junction box on the roof. The city was a blazing inferno. They don't have automatic sprinklers on this futuristic city or, you know. Both sides had advanced their rest the mechons. The Megaloids were programmed to destroy at once anything that showed violence towards themselves. But the Daleks had the advantage of great cunning and their deadly radiation guns. The two sides hurled themselves into the battle for the possession of the flaming city. It looked as if each side must surely destroy the other. Still more Daleks swarmed upon the scene, bent on the total annihilation of their enemies. We attack! We attack! 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 You will be Cones versus spheres. <laughs> you will be annihilated! So oddly enough on screen, this is an exciting sequence. There's even like some animations that are kind of like the 60s Batman, where like the bop, it doesn't say bop, but you see these little animated explosion y things. When Vicky came to, she found herself at the base of the stilts of the city, with the noise of the battle still raging far above her. Barbara was bending over her in concern. Are you alright? Yes. Thanks. Is that from Dalek Invasion of Earth? Or? Yeah, it is. Are you alright? Yes, yes. Come along, let's get back to the top. What about Stephen? Where is he? We don't know, my child. Then his chances of survival in this furnace are actually... Quick! The cable's on fire! The cable, the cable, the cable's on fire! It was a terrifying spectacle. Yes. The mechanoid city was collapsing on top of its foundations, right above the party. So they raced into the jungle again, desperately fleeing the chaos that was falling all around them. But the jungle contained perils that they had already experienced. Great fungoid growths that extended their leaves towards them as they hurried by. On and on they pressed, until at last they came to the TARDIS. And alongside it, the spacecraft which the Daleks had left when pursuing them. Which is never named, but it's called Dardis. Would there be any Dalek creatures left yes, behind I the Dalek craft? <laughs> Had they escaped from the dangers of the mechanoid city, only to find new ones? They, they don't have the bit in the book where, like, in pranks them. No, the in the craft, yeah. They, they found them. Thank great God relief. for it. But Nothing. it is on the album. You've done it again! No. It's not. No, my God! Sorry, I can't kiss you! Can we stay you know, this must be an extremely advanced machine. Wherever we went, it followed us with such great precision and accuracy. Because they were just laughing at his prank on them just now. Yeah. So they, they, they're waiting outside and they hear this, you will be extra, and like they're all freaking out because they had sent Ian to go check it out, and then Ian's like, eh, 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 holding his nose and yeah. just being, pranking them. Being a dumbass. Ha ha, you're all going to die. No, not really. <laughs> I never realized it before. We may never get another chance. Do you think we could work it? Or would the doctor take us? Let's ask him. Doctor! I've never heard you. Stop keeping my life! You'll end up with a couple of burnt cinders flying around in, in space! You idiot! You are absolutely idiot! He says space. It's so they, they, they fixed it then. I think they must yeah. have fixed it. He has a blooper where he says, You'll be burnt cinders floating in Spain! Space! <laughs> <laughs> Strangely specific as a threat. 
Looking around in space. Aimless pain and pain. for two years to get you both home. Well, you haven't been very successful, have you? How dare you, young man? I didn't invite you into the ship in the first place. You both thrust yourselves oh, upon me. Doctor, stop oh, for heaven's sake, I've never heard such nonsense. Look, I know we thrust ourselves upon you. I never thought about this from a fan perspective, but this argument's very similar to the Doctor and Arguments and Earthshock. Yeah. It's too dangerous to send you back home. Yeah. And now we have a chance to go home. We want to take that chance. Will you help us work that machine? No! No! I will not aid in a bet suicide. Oh, he's a stubborn of you. Doctor? He's attached. He doesn't to let them go if they want to. They want to be back in their own time. Don't you want to go with them, child? Hmm? For? What do I want to be back in their time for? I want to be with you. <laughs> Doctor, you've got to help them. Don't you realize, child, the enormous risk? But it's up to them. Do you both realize the enormous risk? We do. We still want to go. I now pronounce you man and <laughs> You notice that Peel actually is shipping them in the story? That's what I was... We, we, we didn't talk about that. We do need to talk about that. Especially over this ridiculous, stupid sound effect. They died. <laughs> he just called him Dr. Who. Yeah, of course. Ian and Barbara had left the planet and their friends and set a course that took them back through space and time to the sights and sounds they had so sadly missed. We made it! To live out their days with Morton C. Dill. <laughs> I went down south in Dixie. <laughs> What the hell is that? Yeah. It's like a dog farting or something. <laughs> <laughs> Mating song, perhaps. Come along, my dear. It's time we were off. Yes, Doctor. Goodbye and good luck to you wherever you are traveling in space. Bye-bye, Doctor. Bye-bye. For the moment you have escaped from the Daleks. But remember, there are countless more on the planet Scarrow you may yet have to reckon with. And you will die soon, old man. You'll die soon. <laughs> yeah, so that was a thing. So was that, is this the last in a, a series of short albums of this story, or this is the only one? This is the only one from any Doctor Who story. Interesting from that it starts 60s. so far along in the story. And it's confusing that it's just called The Daleks, which is... It is. I would have found that as a child completely mystifying. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I, I wonder why they did it, except maybe it was just Century 21. When, when did they release it again? 1966. Which was it to amp ramp up like for the Dogs Master Plan that was coming up, or Maybe. generate publicity for some Dalek? -y? No, I, I'm not really was sure. Was a stage play, the Curse of the Daleks stage play? Curse of the Daleks would have been '65, so I'm not really sure. I I honestly cannot figure out why that was released, because I can think of several individual episodes from Dalek stories that could have been released as a record album. I don't know why that one. Yeah. But 
Yeah. And yes, there was a Dalek stage play on the West End. Really? Oh, yeah. They've done, they've done it on audio, so you can kind of hear the story. It's, it is Daleks and sexism. Yeah. It's, it's really bad. It's all about in the future, but the women have forgotten how to be women. And oh, my it's, word. It's horrible. In fact, I have a copy of it. Do you see it down um, underneath that Doctor Who um, uh, um, that board game? Yeah. It's in plastic. All that. that is the script. Curse of the Daleks. Shall we ceremonially, ceremonially dishonor it in some way? Find that about, uh, well, back in the 20th century, they had weird no notions about equality or equality, something. But yeah, we know nowadays. And it's kind of sad because David Whitaker wrote it, right? David Whitaker wrote it. And David Whitaker, as we know, wrote The Crusades. And, yeah, is. That's a weird thing because he also wrote Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks, which we will find are two of the finest Doctor Who stories ever written. And yet, his ideas about men and women are just bizarre. And Enemy of the Workhouse, some. Um, you know, if you think about the way Faria and Enemy of the World is, that's a pretty oh, sexist yeah. sort of. You know. Exactly right. And I, oh, let me see if I can find it real quick. What's the name of the woman? To, to go back to the point that we did not talk about, which is something the two of you know, I, I was not a fan of when it happened before, but I kind of felt like it was right in the story. Was the shipping of Barbara and Ian? Okay. Was the which is always kind of on the fringes of things. It's yes. a possibility. There's always yes. sort of a mild flirtation. I felt like it was handled much better in the story than it was before. It, Did you? Why? Well, it felt more natural. It felt like they've been on the ship together, they've gone through this stuff together, and it seemed more like... It, it just felt right here, as opposed to yes. before, where it seemed very much, to me, out of character. Huh. And it wasn't something that I really saw. Interesting. How did you feel about it, Allison? Apparently at a loss for words. No, I agree. <laughs> well, it's a shift in the story for them, and it makes yeah. sense they've been living in this sort of dormitory public situation where there's an ongoing flirtation that kind of comes and goes and kind of warms and cools, but they will no longer be in this sort of public situation where they're living with a teenager and an old man at all times. Right, and it, and it seemed very much like that was something where, whereas they're stuck with the doctor, they're stuck with each other, it, it got to a point where they're choosing to be together. Yes. 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 So It, it feels that. a little bit inevitable in a boring way, but yeah, it, it works as a genomont of the relationship. Exactly. It feels right. like a natural progression as opposed to, you know, uh, that vast moment in the Crusaders where he rescues her and then they yeah. lean in for a kiss. So yeah. uh, sense in terms of who could either one of them possibly relate to at a deep and serious level after this who hasn't shared those experiences. Right. It was still yeah. earned in that way, but not especially yeah. and, and like she even, even said in that, we just watched, she's like, we are different people now. Yeah, that's we've, true. We've kind of grown. And I feel like, yes, they have grown together. So okay. I, I, I agree with the shipping now. <laughs> it, it just felt more natural. It felt yes, yes. like a, a more... It feels hard. Now that yeah. is interesting, especially since you've come to that conclusion based on what you've read. Yeah. Yeah, so these books are kind of doing what they're meant to do, yeah. even though they're not all 
aiming at the same thing. No, it's it's, it's definitely like as we said, uh, different authors, different screenplays, different whatever. It they all have these different perspectives that kind of get forced on us. Yeah. We're different editors, so there's no real controlling, you know, consistency. Yeah, which, much like the show itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. especially at the time, which yeah. is something the show yeah. does better now. And we yeah. don't have the consistency of seeing the same performers week after week in the books. Exactly. Right. So we don't necessarily see that continuity of mannerisms and that you would have from writer to writer and producer right. to producer on the show. Interesting. Yeah. So right. it's just something that uh, once we, they, they, I don't even remember what they said on there, but it was like, I was like, romance! Yes, that yeah. was the thing I forgot. And it worked. Huh? And it worked. With all the sexy Dalek noises. Well, I'm glad you did bring it up. Um, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast, want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, read the book, re- write a review on Goodreads, write a comment letting us know, and we may read it aloud. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.52. So it does ride a bit higher. Here are some sample reviews. Min gives it four stars, saying, I love it when there's a grand adventure to be had for the Doctor and Companions. Peel does work wonders with the stories and novelizations. His additions to the inner thoughts, further motivations, and expanding action fills much of what might feel like it is missing, even subtly. I do enjoy the ones that travel to several places, another step into the modern 60s for the time of the show, and then the fanciful one, Doctor Who at a fun fair, while giving an outrageous reason for its being there, gives some comedy to the piece that would otherwise be terrifying. Time-traveling Daleks that can track the Doctor's every move are the worst threat yet. However, there's little menace that I could feel, and I'm content with that. They aren't my favorite bad guy, if one can say such a thing. Well, that's heretical. Also, the mechanoids are an interesting aspect that I'll enjoy hearing more about. There is much to learn about them. Spoiler alert, there isn't. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Daniel Kukwa, whom oh, we've I've heard, heard from... Yeah, yeah, we've heard it several times on this program, also gives it four stars and says, John Peel's first target novelization remains some of his best work. A hybrid of the actual broadcast episodes of the first Doctor Adventure of the Chase combined with inspiration from Terry Nation's first draft scripts. The end result is something worthy of being compared to Terrence Dick's work at his height. Now, he's comparing it to Terrence Dick's at his height, mind you. And, Which yeah, we haven't encountered yet. The, the, yeah, Dick's at its longest. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, giant Dick's, you might say. And Dudley manages to turn one of Doctor Who's most infamous shaggy dog stories into something respectable and exciting. My favorite negative review, however, comes from Bald Mage Steve, who gives it one star and says, Worst Dalek story ever. Two out of ten. Right. Oh my, like, in comic guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes, he can't please everybody. Shortest review ever. <laughs> exactly. Shortest review ever. A whole four words. Yes. So, let's get your ratings. Uh, Dalton, what would you give this? I, I really enjoyed this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go four and a half. Like, I... Really? For, yeah, from beginning to end, I was I was just... I really liked it. I mean, I... I like that Barbara and Ian got together. Like that, if that's not the ultimate, like, and you were dead set against that, right? Like, if that's not the ultimate, two thumbs up. Yeah, okay. I, I, I just really enjoyed it. I, I feel like there, there were, 
there were a lot of highs and lows, and there was there was it, it just flowed really well, okay. and the characterizations, even if they were different from what we've read before, I felt like it all really worked together. Terrific. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this one a lot. So. All right, Allison. The quote I have, relevant quote I have written down is acceptable. The black dollar replied, "It's highest compliment." <laughs> <laughs> have shamefully hurried through the final third of most of these <laughs> due to scheduling uh, issues and let's face it um, uh, procrastination as well and this is the first one I'm definitely going to go back and reread that final third because really? I, I was reading it mostly skimming for plot towards the end and enjoy the first two thirds so much even though I wasn't especially invested in this story at all I felt like so many elements came together so so very pleasingly, and I'm looking forward to meeting uh, to reading more by Peel as well. Okay. So I'll give it a three overall, which I know wow. once again is not the highest <laughs> um, available on Goodreads, but I think it's it's a tie for the highest that I've given. Yeah, so. it does. All right, Trey. Um, I would say that because I know there are even better novelizations um, out there, that I'm going to give it four stars. Okay. Um, it's really well done. It's you know, it's what I would want every novelization to be. Yeah. Um, then there are some others like the Malcolm Hulk ones or some of the others that just go above and beyond, and I think are really good books on their own, not novelizations. Right. But this is this is good. I enjoyed it. Again, if I were comparing it to all of literature, the score would go much lower. But four stars, solid B, B plus. You know, A minus even. Okay. Um, I, I enjoyed it, and it, it's comfort reading. All right. I can see that. And personally, yeah, I would agree. Four out of five stars, mainly because, one, there are there strangely are better books than this one. It's hard to imagine when you read this one, given the comparisons to some of the ones we have read. I mean, yes. Planet of Giant Dicks, hello. <laughs> that has to be the nadir. Sorry, Terrence Dix, but you knew you were doing that for a paycheck. Admit it. Yeah. Whereas John Peel is not writing this book for a paycheck. No. This may be one of the few writers we have had so far, and I would argue that David Whitaker is another one, mm -hmm. and Ian Martyr is possibly still a third one who actually cares about the subject matter yeah. and is emotionally invested in it yeah. and yeah. is trying to improve it, expand it, make it something better than it was on the screen because, well, with the chase, it's pretty easy to make it better than it was on the screen because it sucked on the screen. It's terrible. It's slapstick. It, it's Dalek's, you know, it's Dalek's stuttering. It's Dalek's coughing as they're Daleks coming up out. It's Frankenstein. It's Dalek's versus Frankenstein. It was such a great surprise to me that this was not known as one of the great stories about the Daleks. Yeah, it's not. come in here and find nothing but insults for what a terrible story that's about the Daleks, and I would not have known that oh, yeah. at all from this novelization. I thought it quite engrossing. Yeah, and when Doctor Who Magazine did its poll of all of the uh, televised stories, this came in as the least popular Dalek story. Yeah. And there are worse Dalek stories. Death to the Daleks, hello, we're oh, looking yeah. at you. Oh, Is that the full episode name? Yeah, Death to the Daleks. Hello, we're looking well, at you. I know, uh, <laughs> yes. Whereas I know that Trey actually doesn't like Genesis of the Daleks. Really. I like Genesis, I just think it's one of those stories it's that's padded. overrated. Yeah. And the city location bothers me. Whereas I think it's an 
all-out classic, but that's just me. Whereas ni- neither of us would say that The Chase is one of the best televised Dalek stories. Or best televised stories. Period. Yeah. yeah it, it's just, it's a turd. This book, not a turd. No, the book is fantastic. The book is fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say, that was some damning with faint phrase. And the irony. It's not a turd. It's not a turd. <laughs> it's not a turd. <laughs> it's not a turd. How does one polish a turd? Ask John Peel. Exactly. And he manages it. I, he really does, and he's going to do it again, because we're going to get the 12-part Dalek story, the Dalek's Master Plan, plus... But that's not as turdy, though. It's not as turdy. I don't want to even say it is turdy. It, it has its moments, and he's going to attack Mission to the Unknown on there, which makes it a full 13 parts, and he's going to do two-volume novelization, which we will read and talk about in November. And then he will be responsible for Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks. Conversely, he'll be responsible for War of the Daleks and the other one. And Legacy of the Daleks. But here, yeah, this is awesome. Four out of five. Yeah. So thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. So much of it this time. We hit two hours and 11 minutes. My God. Next time we travel back to 1066, actually it'll be 1988, for Nigel Robinson's novelization of The Time Meddler. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. You can still visit our still pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc also feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes give a thumbs up or comment on on youtube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos follow us on twitter we're at dwtargetbc subscribe to us via the podcast podcast provider of your choice we're on itunes soundcloud stitcher tune in intermittently on podbean if all else fails you as it inevitably will email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com and if you'd like to support us we'd welcome your support at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc thank you very much for listening Thank you, Trey, for being our first guest panelist. Yay! It was marvelous. Love to do it again. And hopefully you will. And thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. that for hours now. <clears throat> there we go. I recorded that. That's good. You really? Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> you do a remix on the again. <laughs> oh my Lord God Jesus. Okay, there we go. So I'm gonna